And I was shown that um, uh, that Lucifer would return, that the UN and the Vatican were going to be completely behind it, again, under false pretenses. He's going to show up and say, I'm here to save the day, right? Uh, and, okay, fine, you know. Yeah, of course, ahead, you can try. say whatever you want. But I've always hated censorship. It's the internet. Sometimes, you know, once they get you for your first love bite, well, it depends on how aware you are, right? I forgot my bullets. I never had a gun. Here I am left standing. Am I the only one? While I see memories have guilted me, I'll never see the sun. Uh, first of all, as you know, the uh, the Anunnaki and the Draco are enemies. Second of all, underneath Baghdad was a stargate that was created by the Anunnaki so that they could transfer from Jupiter to the Earth. Practitioners that you know some are are good and some use their magic for good and to heal and to help, and others do use it for evil. And you know, in some cases, you know, people really were. This is too much sometimes. From the broken ruins of Babylon. This is End of Days Radio. I am your host, Daniel, broadcasting to you all the way from the shimmering Emerald City right here in the heart of the Pacific Northwest. Today's date is December, <coughs> excuse me, December 7th, 2017. And I am Daniel, in case you forgot. This is a show for those that just don't seem to fit in in normal society. You punk rockers, you beboppers, you rebels. You people out there that just don't want to conform. You people out there that have that rebellious spirit in your heart. Those of you out there that have always known deep down that there's something wrong with the world. This is where we explore such wild accusations. But this is a show much different than any other. Because on here we truly do not give a fuck. We just don't. We don't care. We're not trying to be this or that. We want to be the anti-everything here on End of Days Radio. We are the anti-everything. We're not about big business. We're not about making money. We are about spreading chaos, spreading disorder, and bringing that evil, corrupt system down, down to the ground. 
Okay, enough, enough uh, megalomania for me. Today's show, we have a very special guest. Bruce R. Fenton is the author of the Revolutionary Humans Origins ebook series, The Forgotten Exodus. He was born in the historic English town of, Sh- oh, I hope I pronounced this right, Sheltenham, England. He graduated from Anglia Ruskin University in 2002, having studied information systems. Fenton is a world traveler and public speaker. His research activities have featured in the UK's Telegraph newspaper and on a popular science channel show. He is a current member of both the Paleoanthropology Society and the Scientific and Medical Network. So some heavy credentials there. And I will be calling him in a couple minutes. I did want to talk a little bit about endofdaysradio.com. Remember, you can go to endofdaysradio.com for all things End of Days Radio. If you want to know the schedule, if you want to know more about me, if you want to leave some feedback, if you want to discuss something in the forum, remember to go to endofdaysradio.com. You can get my Twitter on there, my email. Everything about End of Days Radio, everything about me is at endofdaysradio.com. Also, the last show... There was quite a bit of feedback, much of it very positive and some very negative, and we're going to get into that after the break, so please stay tuned after our interview. I'm going to go ahead and dial up our guest. Hello. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. How are you? I'm pretty well. Uh, Is my sound quality okay? I'll just check. Can you hear me Sounds Sounds fantastic. Better than most people. Awesome. That's good. We just finally got um, higher speed internet in the area in Australia where I am. It took them a while, but so yeah, hopefully it should be fairly stable. So, Had to happen eventually. <laughs> eventually, yeah. It's a big, so you know, it's a big country. So you can imagine that the rollout is taking years for them to actually <laughs> cover the whole country. Um, but, but there yeah, are advantages got, yeah. as well if you live in Australia. For example, it's very warm. Yes, we do have good weather. I mean, now it's just the start of the. Well, it's heading towards summer, so it's getting hot. Um, yeah. So, and also, I'm using a decent quality mic, so that probably helps. I mean, I have a one of those a Yeti, like a Yeti Blue mic. Oh, that is, is a fantastic uh, mic. So that's probably another reason because you get a lot of people that are using, you know, their phone or using, you know, whatever it is they've managed to find in the local shop. So, so yeah, hopefully my quality should be right. Uh, where are you based? I'm in Seattle, Washington. Okay. The shimmering oh. Emerald City. Uh, how long you? Yeah. So you, how long have you been doing your show then? A while? Or... Yeah, quite a while now. Been... It's, it's been a uh, it's been a good probably five years of getting deep into all of these interesting topics, and it's just it's really exciting mm-hmm. because here I am at the forefront of some of this amazing mm-hmm. information that's rolling out. I, I just feel like the luckiest mm-hmm. guy in the world sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you get to hear obviously directly from a lot of people that are doing you know interesting things or having interesting experiences. Um, it's not that's from the novel things are doing podcasts and radio shows and stuff. And so you know you get to you know hear it first and question it first, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. And, and being on the internet, it gives me so much freedom. We can talk about anything that we want. If, if there's a different mm-hmm. perspective on history about human origins, there's nobody here to block us. I mean, maybe the mm-hmm. ba- bad side is that you have a lot of nonsense out there on the internet, but I sure. think the freedom that it offers is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, if you take that back 20 years, you know, so <laughs> just, you know, it wasn't really like that. So yeah, no, it's, it's lucky. Yeah. And the only trouble is, I guess, is getting people to be critically thinking, as you say, so they can weed out some of that other stuff. But, but apart from that though, yeah, it's great that the, you know, the choice of information is there, you know, the whole smorgasbord of data, um, you know, and I can access things for my research that, you know, I would have to have gone to all the libraries across Europe and the U S and everything, you know, it's insane in the past when, you know, to get the same information, um, you know, for a study like mine, I would have been traveling the world, going to museums <laughs> and libraries and, you know, meeting academics. <clears throat> so yeah, I'm, I'm quite fortunate that I can just log on, you know, and find articles. Well, we've got a lot to get into here, but what I usually like to do at the beginning is to talk just a little bit about you and your background. If if you wouldn't mind, sure. I, I'd love to hear about perhaps um, where you grew up, what it was like, or or maybe mm-hmm. and or maybe how sure. how did this start? This extreme interest in the archaeology and the human origins. Where mm-hmm. did it all begin? Yeah, sure. We can. Yeah, I can definitely give you a bit of a you know, an overview of that, you know, how that's come about and, you know, which in itself is a, is a story, you know, and I've, I've covered a few, I mean, I've been covering all sorts of topics over the years in the ancient mysteries and paranormal. So, I mean, it's, you know, my interests have to go far and wide, put it that way. Excellent. And I do want to get into as much of that stuff as possible. I, uh, I've even heard you uh, speak about giants. So I, I definitely would like to talk about that before we're finished as well. Sure. Give me two seconds. I'm just going to grab a glass of water from the bathroom, which is next to me. So just because my, my throat's gone a little bit croaky. So just a moment. Well, heck, usually most hosts would probably do some kind of commercial or talk right now, but I think I'll have a little water myself. Cheers. Okay, <laughs> that's better. All right. Yeah, so yeah, I can I can give you some of that, you know, the overview of the the giants connection there, and and probably the two main expeditions that are, are relevant there is um, the Ecuadorian Amazon megalithic site that I was involved with, and also going up into the Caucasus in Georgia with the Science Channel to find giant bones. So we can, you know, I can mention both of those, you know, in that beginning bit if you like, or, or wherever it fits in with you. Yeah, definitely. Let's uh why don't we start by talking a little bit about you and then I'd like to talk sure. about this article that you sent me. Okay, sure. So, how did it all begin? Well, for me, um I had an interest in ancient mysteries and the paranormal from when I was very young, about 11 years old. My my grandmother was um giving me these little cards that came free with her her tea that she would buy it was collectible cards and there was a set called ancient you know ancient mysteries of the world and within that it had crystal skulls you know the pyramids bigfoot the loch ness monster you know the spheres of um uh, these giant spheres i forgot where they are now but there was you know all of these kind a wide range of mysteries were covered on i think it's a set of about 40 cards um, and obviously some of the most famous ancient mysteries and some of the paranormal mysteries um and that really just you know, it really sort of resonated with me as something, you know, really fascinating to get into. So, I mean, I'm 41 now. So, I mean, it's been, you know, a, a quite a long journey, you know, sort of 30 years of, of interest in this area uh, and in a, what diverse areas, but anything a little bit off kilter, you know, a little bit strange. So that's really where it begun. So it's been a long journey. Well, you're 41. You still have so much time. You are very young still, Bruce. 
Now, hopefully, yeah, we're living in an age now where who knows, we might we might be able to live on into our hundreds or more with, you know, advances in, you know, medical technology and all the rest of that. Uh, if it's shared with everyone and not just kept for the wealthy, of course. Um, but, yeah, I, I should hopefully have some time to make a few more interesting discoveries yet. Um, I mean, the lot, you know, obviously from 11 years old, I wasn't doing an awful lot of, um, of in-depth research. But, yeah, you know, I've, the last 20 odd years, I've certainly been um, sort of fully engaged with that. You know, so, process of really going out there and finding things and yeah so it's so awesome that you had somebody there a, a mentor figure that was into uh, something paranormal or alternate history related I, i'm sure you feel quite lucky to have had your grandmother there well yeah i mean that was a good thing and also she used to write and she wrote um ghost stories and and had a number of paranormal experiences herself and so i mean you know i think that influence was there you know because my dad would here's my dad's mother he would sort of tell me some of these stories that she had passed on to him as well uh, and the fact that yeah, yeah she gave me these collectible cards which obviously spurred that interest you know yeah it's you know so i guess i had that contact with these subjects at a younger age than most people would have thanks to that so yeah i do appreciate that um i had a head start you know in being open-minded to these kind of subjects um and also you know i have to credit my my dad who was quite um not really a conspiracy theorist, but he certainly was aware of conspiracies that had gone on and um, didn't have a very, you know, atypical view of of the world, you know, that he would tell me about, you know, the CIA uh, manipulation in South America and, the, you know, the Contra rebels mm. affairs and the, the smuggling of cocaine by the CIA. You know, so he was very aware on these things. So so I also grew up with that like kind of alternative perspective compared to what the news and, you know, mainstream history would have told you, which generally filters out the bit where there's mass corruption, you know, um, whereas he would tell me about these things you know so so I, i've had those influences in the family yeah which have definitely influenced me and allowed me to have that you know open-minded pursuits of the truth is your dad still alive oh, he is yeah and he still maintains those interests you know he's a guy that would happily sit and talk to you about you know the the holes in the story of you know 9-11 or, or you know the banking uh, manipulations and stuff so yeah, yeah he maintains an interest in these kind of um these topic areas you know certainly in the more you know i guess the more mainstream well-known ones you know he's not uh, an ancient mysteries researcher by any stretch but but certainly yeah has a very um a very critical eye when it comes to news stories that come out yeah that's again that's very awesome to have somebody there that's not uh, brainwashed by the system so to mm -hmm, speak mm -hmm. because so much of us are just trapped inside of that box Absolutely. You know, and it makes um, a big difference when you're starting off, if you've got, you know, obviously the system brainwashing you through your family who have accepted that earlier brainwashing. So, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate. And I think I can put down a lot of my early achievements to that, you know, to that fact that I, I wasn't conditioned in the same way. Um, so, yeah, it's allowed me from a very early age to start, you know, looking at these subjects and taking them, you know, with an open minded sort of seriousness rather than just dismissing them because, you know, people think, silly you know um so yeah that's made a, an enormous difference and yeah i think it's allowed me to to make some of the you know the connections and revelations you know that i've managed to do so far did you ever look into the whole crystal skull thing yeah i've, I've had i've had a look into that subject um you know i do think that there are ancient crystal skulls i do recognize that there are a number of you know fake ones but i also think there's, there's a difficulty there in because a you can't directly date 
crystal skulls. I mean, you can look on the surface of them and you can see the type of, of machining and the, you know, the kind, the kind of rubbing that's been done. Um, and obviously that can indicate, um, when they were made, but, but that's not, you know, fully an accurate way of dating them or saying whether they're, they're ancient or modern. I mean, we're now seeing that there was, um, you know, uh, rapid you know, sort of high-speed drilling used in the past going back perhaps as far as 70,000 years ago with some of the artifacts found in Siberia at the Denisova cave um, which again so if we're looking at saying that people were doing kind of rapid drilling 70,000 years ago and we're looking at the surface of one of these skulls and we say well look it looks like it's been machined in some way well hang on a minute you know we're now saying that yeah that there's some kind of you know rapid drill technology being used that early you know on so then perhaps some of these skulls that we've assumed were made with a modern technology were actually made with ancient technologies we'd failed to recognize. Um, so that's, you know, another whole subject in itself, which I, I suspect that we're going to have to revisit that um, crystal skull subject in light of the findings at the Denisova cave. Were you into the Indiana Jones movies? Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, yeah, I, I like them. Yeah. Um I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't think there's many archaeologists out there today that are living quite that lifestyle. But, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have been inspired by that, if we're honest. I mean, we all, you know, certainly in our kind of age group, you know, grew up with that, um, with those films, you know. Um, and a lot of the archaeologists out there in the mainstream, you know, do make their memes and jokes around, you know, the Indiana Jones kind of saga. Um, and, yeah, the, and obviously there's some truth in that. You know, we know the Nazis were... We're out there looking for all sorts of strange stuff, you know, mounting expeditions into the Caucasus and into the Tibetan mountains and stuff, you know, that looking for these these ancient relics and stuff. So um, and on the other side, obviously, various secret services of the world taking interest in that um, to see what they were doing. So, I mean, there's be, you know, there is <laughs> underneath that kind of fantastical you know view of it that there is a lot of truth for the behind those films you know what i mean in terms of uh, what was really going on in in terms of ancient mysteries research and the paranormal investigations and how the governments and you know scientists and stuff have, have been sort of covertly involved with that yeah we're given a very cookie cutter very rigid view of our origins in, in school and in religion as well oh yeah absolutely i mean it's you know, I suppose when it comes down to it, they think, you know, we have to, well, history, history, there's an argument for whether history should in some respects even be taught in school level, because you have to condense down so much information into such a small selective, um, you know, um, sort of cherry picked version to fit it into a school curriculum uh, that that and then that becomes history, you know, for so many young people. They think, well, that's history. You know, that's what I've learned. But, you know, that that minuscule slice of it, which is, then, as I say, cherry picked and chosen to uh, produce the best worker or member of society, you know, is a is a definitely a direct form of brainwashing, in my opinion. And I think that perhaps you know, children at school are not really even ready to to fully investigate history in a sensible way. And it should maybe be a topic for their families or for them as they're older to explore rather than an authority figure coming in and saying, you know, this is history, this little bit here, this little bit here, and this is all you need to know. So I don't know, I have, you know, have some some thoughts on that in the way it's taught, because, you know, when you look back and you you remember what you learned at school and then you contrast that against, you know, what you maybe have learned as an adult by researching yourself. You can really see how, you know, how misleading, you know, the, the history you were taught was. Was there a point in your youth where you really realized that there was a whole world of things to discover, 
kind of behind what we're taught that there was that we really didn't know where we came from? Did you have like an aha moment like that? I suppose in some ways for me, that's grown out of my involvement with what I would call, you know, paranormal or supernormal experience. Um, from quite an early age, my early teens, I was um, experiencing odd phenomena, you know, what I'd call um, psychic, telepath, you know, telepathic and, you know, mm. strange experiences. Certainly for myself, I would say that questioned the nature of consciousness, questioned the nature of reality. Um, I also explored psychedelics, you know, at a relatively young age. There was the, the rave scene in in the UK back in the 1990s, which, which I was sort of involved with, you know, traveling the country, going to illegal raves and partying and, you know, meeting lots of people and taking various compounds and experiencing consciousness in a different way. So I think that those two factors um, probably combined to give me a, um, an open mind to, to the broader picture of what it is to be human. Uh, and leading from that, again, building on my earlier exposure to ancient mysteries you know it really provoked that thinking of whether or not perhaps there was also an awful lot being covered up or suppressed or not understood in terms of our human journey um so i suppose in some ways my aha moment you know started coming out of that um, rather than directly finding a site but i mean i think like most people out there the pyramid of egypt would be one of those that i would say was a bit of an aha moment where you think well hang on when you you know when you understand you know what's got into this structure uh the levels of you know accuracy the information it seems to encode it's hard not to say well hang on a minute you know this is not adding up to what we're being told about you know human cultures 50 you know sorry five thousand years ago um you know it, compared to what we're seeing in structures like that so i i think perhaps that i would say that yeah the great pyramid was um one of those catalysts um for me to to really revisit that that story we've been told and it's you mentioned a moment ago that you had had some psychic experiences i i just can't help but be very interested in that because i myself mm -hmm. i i tend to i really put the idea out there that this psychic stuff, the ESP, the uh, the higher powers of the human consciousness—they're they're very real. So I, I would love mm -hmm. to know if would you share a little bit more about that? Did something happen? Did you read about it? What was your mm -hmm. experience with uh, psychic connections or ESP? Well, I'll tell you one that was um, that certainly did catalyze some of my research, and that was an experience I had back in well, it would been around about two thousand and one. Um, and I was at the time I was uh, exploring, you know, a deeper understanding of survival of the spirit and life after death. And I had become involved with a website which was connected to a spiritualist um, like learning center in Wales. I mean, I'm from the UK, I'm from England. Um, but there was a website that called Half Annie Coed, which is, uh, you know, as I say, is, is kind of a spiritualist union uh, website. We have something that in the UK called the the National Spiritualist Union, basically, which deals with, you know, mediumship and has a range of spiritualist churches across the country, just for people who are not familiar with that. Um, so anyway, so I was on the website, I'd use their chat forum, and I'd talk to mediums and other people that were just interested in the subject. Um, and on, on one occasion, I was having a, you know, an online text chat uh, with another member who I had had, you know, conversations with over a period of time, and had come to know as a bit of a friend. Uh, in the middle of this conversation, anyway, I had this sudden, very strange experience, which was one moment I'm typing, you know, on the computer, 
the next moment i am flying through the air above a jungle uh, fully vivid full color you know fully immersive experience um i'm flying i'm not i'm not sure i have a body but it feels that i'm there bodily i mean i didn't look at myself i was looking at the you know what was ahead of me um and i was flying across this jungle and then i could see this white you know gleaming white stepped pyramid ahead of me and i could recognize You're not going to believe it, people. Skype just crashed. Uh, you know, you, you talk about certain subjects and things go haywire and it happens way too much. Hello, Bruce. Hi there. I, think I, I lost you as I was flying over the jungle, I think. Yeah, that might be what happened, but I, I have a long history of strange electronic interference and errors on this show and it, it's never anything on my end it just happens when we talk okay. about the really interesting yeah, you stuff. sort of vanished from <laughs> skype for a moment there but um yeah perhaps it was too sensitive for some people but <laughs> but um, I, I think you got up to there where yes essentially there was a you know i saw a stepped pyramid ahead of me um but gleaming white so it looked to me brand new uh, which is a sort of a key point because obviously anybody who's been to Mesoamerica and seen the pyramids, whether in, you know, Mexico and the region knows that they're gray and decrepit, you know, and collapsing. So it was quite apparent to me that this was a, a new pyramid I was seeing. Um, and as I approached it, I had a knowing about this site. I knew that there was a secret tunnel in the top. Uh, I knew that there was a hidden village nearby that I wasn't seeing and that this was a kind of a beacon for these people who I, I couldn't see visibly. You know, uh, I also was aware that there was a man on top of the pyramid who was in a, I would call sort of, you know, I guess native looking clothes, not wearing very much gesticulating and doing something, holding a staff. Um, I didn't recall him actually, you know, being able to hear anything. It was all a very visual experience, but it was obviously he was saying something or doing something there. Um, and then, as sort of as quick as it had started really it was like bang you know and then i was back you know in my, in my body sitting at my desk you know um obviously astonished you know it was uh even with i'd had previous strange experiences but that was one of the most profound um and at that point you know i, I sort of typed to the person i'd been talking to and said look you know i've just had this really intense experience and she actually replied and said i know she said i was there flying over the jungle and she said, and I also got additional information, uh, including that it was it was the seventh century. She said it was 675 AD, and that the experience had been meant for me rather than for her, which is what she picked up. And she was also a person with intuitive experiences herself. Um, so it was astonishing in that not only did I have that experience, but someone else, you know, sitting at their desk wherever they were, you know, also had the experience concurrently, the same visual experience, and was able to get additional information. And, and that actually began for me an intense period of research into the you know the, the civilizations of mesoamerica particularly the maya who i i felt that this was a mayan temple um and i created a website called 2012rising.com which ran for about seven years um over a million visitors you know all through the whole period of the mayan calendar countdown interacted with all kinds of people through that uh went to mexico went to the sites you know uh, so it was a whole big journey so you say one of the catalysts in my research was certainly that psychic experience which absolutely did change the direction of my life you know pitting me into the fray of the whole mayan calendar subject for all those years so so yeah absolutely you know it's had a big profound impact
Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds almost as if you were given some sort of message or direction to go in. Absolutely. You know, and I, I can see looking back, you know, as the journey has continued, I mean, I, I have since come to understand, you know, a lot more about that experience and, and why it happened, why it had to happen. Um, and that yeah, the journey has flowed on from there with the Mayans and on to other related civilizations who I now understand how they were related, you know, through my other work more recently. Um, so yeah, it, at the time, although it was a kind of, it just seemed like a disjointed fragment, you know, and really hard to place into context as to why, um, I, I now do, yeah, I do have a good understanding of why that happened, but yeah, it does show that the, this, for me, the psychic and the, and the scientific, if you like the, the, the mundane going through papers and studies, you know, the, the two have both been, very important for my research um and i don't have a problem with i understand that there's academics who would just dismiss the you know the psychic experiences but the bottom line is they've they've helped me bring up information which has been tested and proven to be accurate so i don't really care if people dismiss that and it sounds based on what you said earlier that psychedelics as well may have played a part in your journey yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, um, you know, more latterly, you know, I, I spent five years in Ecuador, well, almost six years in Ecuador, where I was um, involved with um, sort of shamanic learning, shamanic experience there, including um, journeys with both San Pedro and with ayahuasca. Uh, and those have also been important influences, ayahuasca particularly, which taught me to be more discerning and more skeptical of the information out there in the web. I used to be, I think, probably a lot more willing to give the benefit of the doubt to to people's you know claims um but for one reason or another the, the ayahuasca experiences provoked me to be a lot more skeptical um which might sound ironic to people they might say you know oh, shouldn't you be more open-minded if you've had all of these experiences and it's like well you know there's a danger of being so open-minded that your brain falls out and i, I think that you know that you have to, to actually show the validity of some of the controversial subjects that we involved with. You have to be more discerning and you have to be able to turn around and say, well, yes, you know, there's, that sounds reasonable, but what you're telling me sounds like nonsense, you know, but give me some evidence for it. Um, which is something that I, I've increasingly taken to doing. And I say that that's been a part of that learning I had with the, the plant teachers. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. It sounds like this has all come together from many different angles. Many different angles. And you can get the sense of that. Yeah. I mean, I've been involved with um, shamanic style of studies and practices um, for, well, probably 16, 17 years or so. So, I mean, it's another whole area that I'm involved in. Um, and as I say, the consciousness research, psychic studies, and the ancient mysteries stuff, and then human origins with a, from a purely kind of scientific perspective as well, uh, looking through papers and looking at studies and assessing the data. So I'm, I'm involved in, yeah, I'm involved in uh, several different areas of um, research. I do really feel that this thing is important because as a species, it's almost like we don't even really know what the heck we're doing here or where we came from or what we even are. Yeah, I, I think you're right then. I think, you know, there's this – also because of that, it allows for a lot of um, conjecture and guesswork, you know, and a lot of a lot of ideas out there floating around the web, you know, because people don't have that grounding um, and because there is so many gaps perhaps in the story they've been told. It does allow for what is probably a lot of, you know, 
nonsense to be fair um but conversely as well there's a lot of um i guess authority type figures that are trying to make out that they do have the full story which is also you know a nonsense because they don't you know i can i can say part of my work is pulling apart some of those claims and showing them to be factually you know incorrect you know so i'd like to say that i'm i'm relatively fair in that you know i will attack an alternative researcher's work just as readily as a academic you know in the consensus's work if i think that they're based on nonsense and they're manipulating or misleading people for so long it seems that the world pretty much the academic world has put the origins of civilization in that egypt area and also sumer and it and in recent times it seems like that's all been kind of overturned like in in really recent times yeah i mean certainly with the you know there's a few different discoveries but i mean see the the discovery of gobekli tepe you know in um anatolia is has really kind of changed that you know we have a twelve thousand year old megalithic complex you know which just kind of in terms of the old story you know this thing just appears out of nowhere with a six thousand year gap between it and you know the constructions in sumeria and and in that you know obviously in the mesopotamian region so i mean there's there's a problem there you know because we were told obviously for the decades that you know civilization arises six thousand years ago in mesopotamia now we know that that can't possibly be true because you've got a you know obviously a complex culture building megaliths um not so far away from you know from the sumerian sort of region but but six thousand years before um and also there's now evidence that um there was a much more complex cultural activity at other sites around the world at earlier periods including evidence that we've been sort of manipulating or to some degree farming jungles going back perhaps tens of thousands of years um something that people didn't realize that you know there's whole swathes of the amazon and um, other jungles that look like they've in fact been engineered to some degree that you know there's too many plants that benefit humans um grouped together in small areas you know and so, so it's clear that there's somebody has been deliberately favoring the growth of these these plants in these areas over a, a vast period of time um so there's and there's evidence that you know that perhaps humans themselves began you know modern humans really may well originate from jungles rather than out on the plains of africa i mean that's a whole other subject the africa is a, but the plains you know as opposed to jungles because it's long been thought that you know we are well adapted to the plains but now they're looking saying hang on a minute you know we've got particularly there's some remains found in indonesia recently which well they were found a while ago but they've been redated and we now know that they're, they're towards seventy thousand years old uh, and they're found like deep in a jungle in a cave so clearly people were living you know in the jungle areas really early which shows adaptation to jungle living which is a really a specialist kind of living because like you know you and i i mean i don't know about your survival skills but most people you know who are not jungle tribal people can't just want, wander into the jungle and hope to survive yeah You'd be lucky to be alive in a week or two you know um so clearly it took a, t- a great period of time adapting and learning to live in the jungle so that would place us there even earlier than 70,000 years ago so there's you know the, the, that whole part of the story is being rewritten as well and there have been yeah a whole a whole long line of discoveries particularly the last couple of years that yeah are really questioning that you know how did civilization arise where when you know what is civilization um there's there's whole you know big questions that are getting thrown up there which are really eating into that consensus story that we've all been told what made you decide that you wanted to write a book 
Um, this book actually, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it started off as the, it was supposed to be one chapter of a, of a book on my research in Ecuador, which was to do with a, a megalithic complex in the jungle there. And I thought I had to do one chapter that explains, you know, how these people were in Ecuador like early enough to build the complex uh, and how they relate to the first people in the Americas um, and how that affects the out of Africa story, because you know there's evidence for people in the Americas uh, much earlier than the consensus, you know, which is the, Clo- the Clovis theory, which obviously is basically collapsed now, which was that, you know, nobody was there until about 13,000 years ago. Obviously, the Clovis theory is basically collapsed. There's a few people clinging on to it, but um, there's clear evidence of humans throughout certainly the South America and Central America going back to long before that. I mean, at this point, there's very strong evidence going in the 20 to 30,000 year period. And then there's fragmentary evidence going back 40,000, 50,000, perhaps 60,000 years ago. Uh, And then there's a gap. And then you've got fragmentary evidence of earlier hominins in the Americas going back beyond 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. So so that that whole story, obviously, you know, conflicts directly with the out of Africa models where, you know, America was the last place to be reached and only recently. So I had to kind of explain before talking about this site and the people I thought that built it, um, how they could be there early enough. Uh, but what happened in the end is my, my one chapter grew into its own study uh, and became a book. Yeah, that's that's incredibly fascinating. It sounds like there may well have been civilization really early uh, not only in south america but maybe even in north america yeah i, I think there probably is not i know that at the moment graham hancock is doing a study out there and he's looking for evidence of that of that perhaps lost high culture or civilization of north america um and that you know he's also provided you know evidence for what might have happened to it you know most people will know about the comic impact theories and see the the problems in the younger dryas with extreme flooding events in north america um not only his work but there's you know a few a few different scholars and researchers have come out with information obviously on that but they probably most of your listeners will know of of some of that through graham hancock's work um that basically you know it looks like parts of north america were almost washed clean um by these huge flooding events which were on cataclysmic scale Uh, plus it seems like there was some insanely big wildfires um and you know so when you start to put these factors in you know you've got ice age conditions then suddenly you've got you know maybe a comet impact in north america you've got fires then you've got the melting of the ice you've got like cataclysmic floods sweeping across wiping clean vast areas uh you can start to appreciate why we're not seeing obvious evidence of these people and why it is that we're finding that down in South America, you've got a lot more evidence than you have in North America. So it doesn't mean that the people weren't there as well at that early stage, but it's going to make it a heck of a lot more difficult to find that evidence. Uh, yeah. Graham Hancock, he's a, another guy that's, that's uh, attracted a lot of attention for going against the conventional way of thinking with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and you will inevitably. I mean, you're up against, you know, not only the academics and the consensus view, but all of the people that have subscribed fully to that, um, and to tend to have something of a knee jerk reaction to anything that, that goes against the grain. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, that's kind of the way it is. 
And so, and also as Graham has always said, you know, he's a journalist. He doesn't claim to be, you know, a archaeologist or, you know, or in any way saying that, you know, that he is a you know, consensus scientist, you know, he, he's writing his reports of what he has uncovered and sharing those. Um, and they shouldn't necessarily be treated in the same way that an academic paper would be, you know, that, that, you know, that's not the aim of what, what he's doing in that respect. You know, he's telling an account of what he has found through his research. Um, so I, I think that, you know, people should just, you know, keep an open mind and look at that and then they can go away and look at, you know, whether they find supporting evidence for things that he's found and connections that he's made. And I would say the same with a lot of my work. Um, I mean, my current book is somewhat different, and I sort of should say that, you know, it's not like an easy reading, you know, um, adventure story or, you know, or my opinion on on how the human story began. You know, I've really delved into the, the academic, you know, archives and, and gone through the reports and the papers and, and you know, that's, they're all referenced throughout the book. You know, the Steinitz essentially is a popular science book. Um it's not intended to be simply, you know, like an alternate history, you know, uh, research kind of overview. You know, it's intended to reach um, young scientists and, um, you know, the future academics, if you like. That's that's my primary target audience. I'd also like, of course, the educated and, you know, deep thinking public to engage with the book and to go through it. You know, it's not written in an overly dry academic style as would be a say a textbook um but no but it is you know it is a popular science book so i mean i i do have to go through and make sure that um that i'm not just saying i believe that this happened or i think that that happened i have to give a paper or you know a study or a find or something that supports my interpretations uh, and i do that throughout the book um essentially right from seven million years ago i sort of spend some time in that early period uh, assessing you know what's changed in terms of new finds and then i take that all the way up to around twenty thousand years ago uh, my main focus is is obviously the emergence of homo sapiens and then modern humans but but there is more in there so if people have an interest in in neanderthals denisovans homo erectus uh, and that story between sort of seven million years ago up until the first split with homo sapiens they'll find that there's you know, there's a good bit of information on that um but i think the area that interests most people will be the where i explore the origins of homo sapiens i mean you can always say that you can feel free to buy the book and skip through a few chapters if that's what you you know someone wants to know about because there's a few chapters on that but i do sort of begin elsewhere you know in a older period so this is all a, a long sweeping story of the human race and even species Mm -hmm. that came before it. Could you kind of walk us through that early beginning from proto man to homo sapien Mm -hmm. and where homo sapien went from there? Sure. I mean, I start off looking at, as I say, about 7 million years ago. I mean, there's some argument now as to whether or not the split with um, the ancestors of chimpanzees might be earlier, perhaps 15 million years ago, even, but I mean, I, I don't know if I mentioned that. In the, I think I might briefly. But anyway, we know that from around about, say, somewhere between seven and five million years ago, we have the the earliest fossils of what seem to be, um, you know, hominins and, you know, the creatures that have split away from the lines that lead to other living primates like chimpanzees, etc. So we tend to think of these as hominins, which means, you know, within that human family. Uh, the early group are known as the Australopithecines. I mean, there's 
there's the possibility that they are not directly related to us and there's a possibility they are but you know so i explore them to a, to a short degree but one of the things I, I mentioned early on is that there's a you know a widespread belief in the subject area that that you know the earliest ancestors around that period were you know ape-like you know that they were tree dwellers in the forests of africa uh, very ape-like um, but this is not necessarily true and it is not proven by the evidence uh, it may equally be that these were quite human-like and that were more human-like than they were ape-like um, because there's some interesting things to, to consider here that for example when you look at our close relatives you know the other primates particularly chimpanzees that the way they move is quite fascinating because what you see is that they have this kind of knuckle walking which is you know which is unlike other like quadrupedic animals you know we look at any four-legged animal and how it moves and you can contrast it with the chimpanzees it reminds you somewhat of a bipedal creature that has begun to revert to being quadrupedic uh, rather than it having evolved to move on on four legs you know so there's there's some interesting you know thoughts on that by academics which you know not my idea you know i i found that actually said by a, a well-respected professor um pointing out that it may well be that our earliest ancestor is more human-like uh, and i think that in itself is quite revolutionary because it's something you're never taught huh? you don't get told at school oh but perhaps they were more human-like you know i don't remember any anyone ever saying that no and yet you know it's always an ape isn't it so so i think things like that people have to consider as well that even from a consensus you know professor saying well actually you know it could be more human like you thought well that's quite interesting because we've all heard you know some more conspiracy type stuff where they say you know they used to be humans uh, you know a longer time you know in the past than we thought well perhaps there was some type of, of human like creature that you know reverted to being more ape-like and now is reverting to being more human-like i mean we don't know i mean and that's that's an open question and we and people say oh could that be true yes it could be true we don't know because evolution works in funny ways and that you adapt to the situations that are going on around you so you know if it became beneficial to become you know a four-legged tree dweller or whatever you know then we would eventually become that you know but if it becomes beneficial then revert again and i've seen the same argument in the brain size that i've seen a, a scientist saying that it looks almost as though uh, that we may may have in our ancestry a long way back you know millions and millions of years ago a large brained ancestor who lost that large brain but it, it was recorded in our you know in our dna and that it's begun to express again you know, in more recent times. So there's a lot of these things that you start to think, well, hang on a minute, you know, these are not coming from, you know, ancient aliens theorists or, or someone that you can easily turn around and say, oh, well, you know, they're just, you know, they're kooky or something. You know, these are like, you know, serious academics who are looking at it and saying, well, you know, yes, could be that. And I think that's astonishing in itself. Um, and then, but anyway, these early hominins go on you know, over the last, I'd say from about 4 million years ago is when you'd say that they were more recognizably you know, human, if you like. Um, and certainly, you know, you, you'd rec you'd see them as being different to us, but, you know, they're, they're wandering around, they're using tools, um, they, they're upright, uh, they, they look more or less human. Um, so that's really when we've got a bit more solid, you know, archaeology to support that, you know, there's human ancestors are wandering around in Africa, uh, possibly outside of Africa. There's been a few finds recently, but certainly at least in Africa at that period. Um, and that these go on then to about, well, around 1.8 million, say 2 million years ago, we have the most, I guess, 
significant change, which is the um, the emergence of Homo erectus. Um, and Homo erectus really is sort of a fascinating species because it goes – we find it well beyond Africa. Yeah, so that's that point, the one yeah. that you always hear being talked about. Homo erectus is right up mm-hmm. there. Yeah, because it's – you know, suddenly you have evidence of this this species in Southeast Asia – up in the Georgian Caucasus, you know, and in Africa, all around the same time, around about 1.8 to 1.9 million years ago. So it's almost as if, like, you know, click your fingers, bang, it's everywhere. You know, what's happened here? Because that's that's quite surprising, you know, because the, first they thought you'd see, you know, these species appear in Africa, and you should then see them slowly, you know, migrating out, and you might find, you know, a few pockets of... um of bones at 1.6 million, you know, and then further away at 1.4 and so on. But it doesn't seem like that. Uh, instead, it appears that, that, you know, they are spread very rapidly. And there's questions there then about how that has happened. You know, was there perhaps an earlier species of hominin, which was in Africa and Eurasia, and that the Homo erectus populations have emerged separately from that older population? Or did this migration happen earlier and we just haven't found the bones or you know so there's, there's there is a kind of a mystery there to how we've got um these hominins you know all the way down to southeast asia you know so quickly um so that's where really things start to get fascinating because generally speaking it's been assumed that these are the best candidates for the you know the, the species that precedes archaic homo sapiens so if we've emerged from them uh, then it's interesting to see that that could potentially have happened anywhere across the world for a start, which undermines that surety, you know, that, well, if they were only in Africa and they were definitely our ancestors, you'd have to say that, okay, well, we must have emerged from them there. But we don't see that. Instead, we see that they're actually spread right across the like the, the habitable part of the world really early. Um, so that's that's where I really sort of get start to get into this problematic data. But... Homo sapiens, sorry, Homo, Homo erectus also do, they seem to be doing some incredible stuff because we've got down in, in Southeast Asia, you've got um, evidence that they perhaps were sailing because we, we know that hominins in that region reached Flores by about a million years ago. And Flores is a small island in Indonesia which requires you to cross what's called the Wallace Line, which is a geological boundary between Southeast Asia and Australasia. And it's it's like intense currents moving down between the Indonesian islands, which make it really difficult to, you know, island hop your way across. So, but we find these tools at 1 million years ago on Flores. And then later on in the record, they found bones of what's called Homo floresiensis, which is the Hobbit people. Uh, and those seem to go back to at least 800,000 years ago on the island. Um, and also a later period around up to around 50,000 years ago, there's more evidence of these these little people but the bottom line is that shows that there is there is hominin activity you know moving around in the islands of indonesia like a million years ago which is quite extraordinary as well in itself because you've got to kind of explain how they're doing that um i mean one of the theories has been that people were washed off of an island and somehow floated to flores but you know that's you know that's a problematic theory but as is the the possibility that they were sailing a million years ago, which obviously is problematic. Either way, you've got some mystery there and and some extraordinary events going on with, you know, humans managed to penetrate a, a supposedly near impenetrable line um, very early in the timeline uh, and placing them basically in spitting distance of Australasia, which I believe they, they reached almost immediately after that. 
it would make sense for life to come from Africa or near the equator because even now it seems like there's a lot more species of life in those areas, almost like that's where new species are created in the jungle. Yeah, I, I, I would not be surprised at all if really that the equator played the crucial role, you know, through most of human prehistory because you know i think that's why funnily enough you know you do tend to find some of the most interesting evidence uh along the equator and flores again yeah is on the equator and you know if you look across the world again into the americas you find a lot of the oldest and most interesting um, finds in sort of central america and clustered around the equator so i mean yeah i definitely think you know that equatorial band is is a key area to look for signs of you know our early story um and unsurprisingly yeah that is generally where we're finding it um on all three points you know obviously you're looking central america you're looking obviously uh, equatorial africa and across sort of indonesia and that part of southeast asia the top of you know northern australia uh, and that those areas have, have all produced incredible finds and at this point in the story are we in the ice age so, well, we've had, yeah, we've sort of going in and out of ice ages over obviously vast periods of time. Um, specifically, a million years ago, I can't remember off the top of my head what the, what the climate was like. Um, but yeah, we sort of go in, you know, see, so we go in and out of these like long periods of ice. Uh, the last ice age, though, it goes, you know, we, we came out, well, we're still still in it, but the last great melting obviously is about sort of 15,000 years ago. Um, prior to that, we were in an extended cold period um, for some considerable period. I'd have to sort of pull it up. I'm not, I'm not, I can't say that I've cast to mind the exact dates for the, the ins and outs of the ice. But um, what we do find is that around that time, we have then these changes in, in form, in the human species that begin to happen in the hominin species basically around 800,000 years ago there's a a sudden rapid change in human form with the the brain becoming you know acceleratedly large um early humans start to build shelters there's you know increasingly common use of fire uh, new types of tools appear so the human story really seems to accelerate around about 800,000 years ago uh, and that is a period when there is um there is lower sea levels and there is ability to sort of move around between areas that you wouldn't necessarily be able to easily move around between, you know, now. Um, so yeah, 800,000 years ago is a really an interesting period where strange things that, you know, strange things are happening evolutionarily and that, yeah, the climate does allow some movement that we wouldn't have now. So that's, I think is a, a, a crucial time because we also now find that in very recent genetic studies, they have, basically uncovered that it seems that the the earliest direct ancestors of of modern humans and of all homo sapiens closest relatives like the what i'd call homo sapiens denisova homo sapiens neanderthals uh, this family begins to break away from its direct ancestors around about 750 to 800,000 years ago so this is in line with what we already knew that there was this sudden brain growth you know and these changes in behavior around about 800,000 years ago but they're now beginning to mesh with new genetic studies because until very recently it was thought that the earliest homo sapiens arose perhaps 200,000 to maybe you know 400,000 years ago but now we're seeing well hang on a minute you know our earliest direct ancestors are splitting away around about you know seven somewhere between seven and eight hundred thousand years ago so this has been and that's only in the last year that that's come about so this has been an enormous 
shakeup. Um, and obviously combined with new finds of Homo sapiens you know, remains in, uh, well, or redating of them, both in East Asia and in North Africa, with them taken back to 260,000 years ago in East Asia, 300,000 years ago in North Africa. So there's, yeah, the whole story's had a huge shakeup. We now know that, yeah, the earliest, what I'd call uh, archaic Homo sapiens um, were probably wandering around some 700 or so thousand years ago, you know, so it's, it's pretty incredible. 700,000 years that's it, it seems like that's not that long ago for our species to come into being in, in some respects but then i guess you know it's a lot longer than what we were previously told that it was you know it's gone back considerably from that 200,000 oh yeah definitely does it seem to you like the proto-humans advanced too quickly uh was there a jump or is the picture now completely different could we actually there's definitely a jump Mm -hmm. around that in that period of around 800 to 700,000 years ago as i say like you know where we all these species start to emerge i mean the other thing is you have to say that is i find it particularly peculiar that in that period that not only do you have this change from whatever this being was 800,000 years ago. I mean, we can assume it was a Homo erectus or we can call it a Homo erectus-like hominin because we're not sure absolutely, you know, who we've come out of. But what we can say is that around that period, you know, certainly you have the beginnings of multiple lines of humans you know as i said denisovans neanderthals um are sort of homo sapiens sapiens or you know that then also other unidentified hominins we know that there's there's genetic traces in modern humans of of at least you know two other um, populations and there's no reason to think that there weren't other populations that have gone extinct but the strange thing is they all seem to be coming you know starting to come out around that period so you don't just have a change that in the population that we advance on to a new form but we suddenly split into multiple forms and on top of that have have the fastest accelerated brain growth uh, of any period you know detected in the archaeological record along with other significant changes in our genetics and form and behavior so for me there's a there's a big anomaly hanging over that period um which will feature in a later book of mine um because I don't think the consensus explains that very well at all. Yeah, it just seems like humans are so different than animals out there. Like even monkeys, I mean, we walk upright. We don't really have any fur. We have this skin and and even our eyes and hair. It it does seem rather unique in the animal kingdom. Uh, And some of that uniqueness comes down to um, another anomaly, which is the fused chromosome that we have, which some some listeners may be aware of i think it's uh, top of my head i think it's chromosome 23 um i'd have to double check that but anyway there's a, one of our uh, two of our chromosomes are fused which means that we have a, a different number of chromosomes to other primate relatives um now this is probably an enormous barrier to interbreeding for a start so it would it would have most likely cut us off from any near relatives any other primates once this happened um and it also seems to have been involved with this this you know brain growth and these some other benefits because whatever benefits it gave they must have been profound because the only you know the only hominins that are alive today 
and that we can the ones that we can detect in the archaeological record like the neanderthals and denisovans they all shared in this they all had this fused chromosome so so you know this shows that it happened at least back as far as that that period 700 to 800,000 years ago when we were diverging because they all have it right so all of our close relatives share in that that fused chromosome and then you look at us and you look at the profound differences between us and other primates and, and they and they're, and in some ways we're very similar to them in other ways you know, there are profound differences um i mean obviously you know form is a very obvious way you look and you say okay we look different but we have profound differences in the way our brains work and you know we have profound differences in the way you know our immune systems work and all sorts of things that really separate us in a deeper way than than just our you know our physical adaptions um and i do think that there's there's an anomaly in there because you know though yes people can say okay well sometimes these mutations just happen okay yeah but this this is a profound one because everyone else who doesn't have it you know is not alive today you know they didn't survive through that seven hundred thousand years you know they they seem to have just quietly gone away and there's only these other humans that you know that remain so there's it's it's very strange that you know it must give us some in, you know incredible benefits and i think that you know that we we really need to think about that and there's a number of other things associated with that which i mean i would have to go into intense detail but suffice to say it's not the only anomaly that there's an, there's several other mutations connected with it which are equally strange and equally unlikely that all happened sort of bunched around it uh, and that seem to make us you know who we are so I, I'll, let, I'll let your listeners kind of you know, infer into that what they will, because until I write it up and I provide the the supporting science evidence, I won't sort of go too much out there with it. But I just leave people you can sort of see where that's kind of going. And I, I think people can imagine themselves. Obviously, I, I see some possibilities in there for why humans have emerged, um, and that certainly there's an oddity in the record. Yeah, it, it is very strange. I know there a lot of people, they'll say, oh, it was God or it was aliens or maybe it was even some kind of drug that they were taking. It was- yeah, I mean, and like at that point, I think people at least you can say is that they are they are they have some reason to say those things because it is so strange that there's there's really um I think it gives people the rights to sort of speculate quite wide, you know, wildly on it because, you know, it is a very odd anomaly. And um, and I don't blame people for saying they see God's hand in it. I don't blame people for saying they see aliens. In it. I wouldn't blame them if they say they see an advanced civilization, you know, changing humans or any of those things, because it, it's it's that odd that um, it certainly provokes that thinking. And, um, you know, and then it's for individual researchers to look at the evidence and decide what they think is the most likely answer. You know, obviously, I have my opinion. Others will have their opinions. And I know that's come out in a few books, you know, already. I'm not I'm not the only person aware of that, of course. In fact, I was just reading um, Greg Braden's one of his books the other day. I'm not a, a big reader of the, the sort of, you know, Hay House, New Age kind of books. But because it was on evolution, I, I got a copy online. And, and he does go into that. He spends quite a bit of time on that. And, you know, his, his opinion is that, yeah, again, that it, um, it suggests intelligence of some sort at work in the process of human evolution. Uh, and I would agree with that. Now, whether you say that intelligence is, is God, is something about human consciousness, is something about aliens, you know, that is a matter of, you know, of some debate. But it's hard not to see that anomaly as being you know some strange kind of sign of intelligence in our process and the way that it was so beneficial that only those with it you know seem to then flourish yeah definitely and, and for all we know 
maybe the answers are in the area that we talked about earlier where humans almost seem to have a, a psychic connection to each other. Maybe the answers could even be there somewhere. Yeah, and I think, you know, that these are other areas as well that are important to look at. I mean, in the book I've produced, you know, I've been wary of going into those areas. And that's for a good reason. As I say, I mean, it's it's directed at people who would want to see just, you know, the science of the story, you know, at this stage. And it's setting the foundations for for other books that I'm writing at the moment. Because, you know, if you start, as you know, if you start off with one word that can be called woo-woo in your book... <laughs> So that's it. Every academic minded consensus thinker, all of the scientists, all of their students, all of those people will immediately say, oh, but he's got that woo woo in his book, you know. And so that book goes into the garbage bin, um, at least for them, not for the other, you know, for the rest of the public and for the open minded public. But as you know, those people will use that one little thing that you've said to put your book into the into the garbage bin so i've been quite careful not to do that but it doesn't mean that those aren't legitimate areas of study and i do follow them in my own research um, but the current book is written for somebody that wouldn't want to hear about you know god aliens uh ancient civilizations you know it, it is just the foundation from which i can then discuss other subjects if you like um I feel that I have to. Do, I, I feel that having in the past written uh, more for the open-minded, you know, I guess um, alternative history kind of crowd, um, that I'm, I'm aware that that you don't really have to go to the same levels of of intense referencing and details that you'd have to for, you know, I guess more skeptical thinkers. So I've deliberately written this book for those other people, uh, and I will produce another book which will go into some of these these areas which um i know an awful lot of people would like to hear me speak on uh and i will be doing that i mean i'm basically i'm going to write a book that covers my own research journey which is involves you know i've been under the pyramids in tunnels in egypt you know I, i've been to in, you know I've, I've been with old weird mayan guys and they're nowhere telling me about underground you know catacombs with strange things going on in them you know i've you know walked up into the caucasus hunting for giant bones with the science channel you know, so i've been out there done all sorts of strange things found all sorts of strange places i'm aware of all kinds of bizarre things that are going on and you know conspiracies and um strange forces uh, you know all of that is i for me legitimate and a legitimate research area um and that will all feature in a separate book um but i also have to produce two quite science books which is this one that i've put out there and a second one which will be about the the early populating of the americas going back to well before the as i say the clovis thing you know as, as i mentioned earlier you know there's evidence for earlier migrations going back much you know much further back to fifty thousand, and some maybe a hundred or two hundred thousand. i'm going to be detailing that in a separate book and then the book after that or concurrently with it will go more into the the really the broad discussion of the research area and some of that stranger phenomena. Yeah, that sounds very fascinating and I can't wait. But uh, since we are still talking about humans, I do want to ask, did those early humans, did they live very long and were they really strong? Like what is depicted in some of our movies and things like that? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems that from what we can understand that Neanderthals were stronger than us, um, that they seem to have been, you know, better built. Um, but 
there are there are periods when you know when we seem to have been taller or larger and then periods where we seem to be shorter, smaller. Um, it does, you know, and then again, across different regions, there's differences. But I don't think in terms of, of lifespan that we can really say for sure, you know, how long we've lived in the past, you know, on average. Um, I think, you know, in the, in the portion of time that we can look into with genetics and stuff, they usually seem to suggest that we had shorter lifespans, particularly partly because we didn't have, you know, medical help in the same way we have now. Um, and there was a much, you know, a harder life, um, you know, going out there against the wilds and all the rest of it. So yeah, there's a tendency to suggest we lived shorter periods, but I don't know that that's proven in general that we can say that in that whole period that there wasn't times when, you know, humans had extended lifetimes. I mean, it's, you know, it is possible as far as I know, I don't know any reason why or any way we could definitely write that off. Um, I mean, we can only peer back a certain depth. I mean, one of the things people have to understand is we don't have DNA evidence, you know, going back that far. You know, the oldest DNA from, you know, like early hominins that we have is about 500,000 years old, right? So, so we haven't got any DNA from these, you know, these earlier hominins going back millions of years. I mean, that's something I guess that not all listeners would know that because, you know, sometimes there's an assumption that we have DNA that just goes back into the vast past, but that's not really the case. Um, all we have beyond that is, you know, bone fragments and stone tools. And so there's only a certain amount you can tell from that. You know, obviously, if you find bones and examine them, sometimes you can get an idea of how old the person was when they died or, you know, and obviously you can see you know, changes in the skull and you can get an idea which species they were. But but you can't really go into the depth that you can when you've got DNA um, and we're very limited on that. And in terms of fully modern humans like us, uh, we only have DNA going back about 50,000 years. So, I mean, again, that's so it makes it problematic to say what it was like, you know, in terms of beyond that, you know, what was happening with with the individual humans in terms of you know, their own, you know, their, their genes and stuff. We don't really know. Um, I mean, we can infer some stuff from the, the DNA that we've got, but it's not from direct ancestors. It's from ancestors of Neanderthals. So, so that's a kind of an issue. Another thing I would like to raise that while we're on that subject of the age of DNA is that, is that in fact, you know, Africa, which is obviously always wanted as, you know, the origins of all hominins and humans and the, everyone always comes out of Africa is that we, we have very young DNA, you know, for the, for Africa, the, the oldest actually African DNA we have is only 8,000 years old. Right. And so that's something that doesn't get really a lot of talking about, you know, because I hear people say to me, but look, Bruce, you know, it's all proven by the African DNA. And it's like, hang on a minute. Do you know how old, the, the, the dna is from african finds because people say that to you like that we have million year old dna from africa but that's total bullshit because because we don't have that you know we have eight thousand year old dna and you know how far back eight thousand year old dna can place people in africa right eight thousand years ago beyond that all you have is the fragmentary fossil record right so I find it quite sort of amusing sometimes when people turn around and say to me, but Bruce, you know, you know, you've got this theory, but obviously you're wrong because we've got all this like African DNA that proves you're wrong. And it's like, well, show me it. Show me the study. Show me the finding of this ancient African DNA because because I do know the papers. I do know the studies and I know there isn't any. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. And it's and what what in reality is done 
is samples of modern, like fully modern African DNA. And I'm half, I'm half West African. So samples of modern people's DNA like mine would be taken and they would look at that and say, well, we assume that Africans were the first people. Therefore, this African DNA that he has goes back to, you know, 200,000 years ago at least because, because we're sure that Africans, you know, there were humans living in Africa that period and that they stayed there up until 60,000 years ago and then they came out. So therefore, African DNA uh, can be considered, you know, pure African all the way back from 60,000 to 200,000 years ago. All right. But that's just an assum- a wild assumption, you know. That, that's not and that's not a scientific, you know, fact. I mean, you've got to really think about that. Hang on a minute, you know, that you're just making an assumption that this modern African's DNA, um, you know, can be considered to be like pure early human, you know, African DNA. That's that's not really true. And it's not it's not backed up by all of the evidence out there. I mean, there's some, for example, even with the DNA that has been found in these six thousand to eight thousand year old sites in Africa, they found that there was far more evidence of of gene flow from Eurasia going back into Africa than they ever thought. That there had been some early migrations into Africa, even even in that period. So they know that what they had considered, you know, that this modern African, you know, genome was in fact mixed Eurasian African for a start. They've also now realizing that there there is Neanderthal DNA. For a long time, they've always said Africans have no Neanderthal DNA. Well, hang on a minute. If there's gene flow from Eurasia, even in the last few thousand years, and all Eurasians have around two to three percent of Neanderthal DNA, how can Africans not have any Neanderthal DNA? Yeah, that really flips right? everything make upside any sense. down. Yeah. So then. So things that they've been considering as pure African DNA, which they've ignored, because, well, that's pure African DNA, some of that is Neanderthal, right? Some of that is also Eurasian. So, so this, this whole area is, in a, is currently in a bit of a sort of a crisis rewrite, but it, it's never done in a very loud way. You know, so the public is not really talking, <laughs> oh, by the way, this is a total freaking screw-up here. and we, We're just not sure how to get our heads around it. So instead it's like, well, there's a little change here. And then in a few weeks' time you'll hear another news story. Oh, and there's a little change here. You know, but it's not just little changes. When you add these together, there's an enormous problem because on top of the assumption that, you know, that this – DNA, you know, is African. If you go further back, right, the whole basis of the, 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 the understanding of out of Africa as the, and I'm talking about here, the recent out of Africa populating of Eurasia, okay? Forget about early hominins who, who as far as we can see, early hominins were, you know, in Africa largely, and that is most likely where the earliest hominins were living, okay? I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, it may be wrong, but that's where the strongest evidence is, right? But when we look at this other period and we say the recent out of Africa and it's supposedly 60,000 years ago, a group of Africans, right, they walk out across the Levant and the Middle East and they go into, you know, through Eurasia, spread across into East Asia, down into Southeast Asia, reach Australasia. All of that is within the last 60,000 years. I mean, nearly everyone out there in the world will have heard at some point, you know, modern humans walked out of Africa 60,000 years ago, populated the world, right? That's commonly known okay what most people don't understand is what is that based on you know other than the assumption that you know humans lived in africa a long time ago therefore they must have come out of there but it's not as simple as that what it's actually based on is that when you look at the 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 genome of modern africans you find that around about seventy thousand years ago two two new um 
uh, haplogroups appear. Basically, there's a was a female and male. There's a, a mtDNA haplogroup, um, and there's also a Y chromosomal um, haplogroup, right? And these are called haplogroup L3 and haplogroup CT, right? And these both appear in the African genome of modern Africans. We we've traced it back, and they say, okay, you know, this has appeared about seventy thousand years ago. We know that these two haplogroups right, are basal to all Eurasians. So everybody in Eurasia can trace back to an ancestor that was carrying those two, you know, a small group of ancestors carrying those two haplogroups. Therefore, the assumption is that they must trace back to those people, you know, in Africa, in East Africa, where this chromosomes seem these these two haplogroups seem to appear first amongst these group of east africans 70,000 years ago so therefore you know working hypothesis two mutations occurred simultaneously in east africa and then almost immediately for some reason amongst that same group where the mutation happened a, a, a party of people walk out of africa perhaps following what they call green corridors which is you know an environmental period in which um, plants and animals lead people into a new region and that they then spread out and become all Eurasians and Australasians, right? It's a nice theory until you really test it, right? Because what you actually find is that in that period, well, first of all, you find that the Y chromosomal and mtDNA mutation rates are vastly different, right? They're different by 10 times, Okay. So the chances of having mutations happening on both lines, right, in the same moment, in the same place, is really, really small, really unlikely. The second thing is you find that the spread of L3 in Africa moves westwards, right? As though it's going into Africa, not out of Africa. Uh, it also it appears first amongst Africans living very near to the Bab el Mandab Straits, which is one of the two main exit and entryways into the continent. Um, and so you start to hang on a minute, you know, wouldn't this be better explained by people walking in, right, and breeding with the local people? And yes, is the answer. Because secondly, when you when you see what is happening in that period around about 70,000 years ago, you know, why would people walk into Africa? Well, there's an enormous climate disaster, right, raging across the Northern Hemisphere, across Eurasia. Yeah, the climate is going down into like severe ice. Uh, there has been a huge supervolcano has erupted in in Indonesia, and this, the the plume of dust, unbelievable amounts of dust, gases, you know, are spewing up, and they're going northwest, drifting across Eurasia, accelerating an existing like cooling phase, rapid, you know, rapidly cooling the climate. Also, acid rain, you know, cutting out sunlight. You've got this disaster, right? So, so all these humans across Eurasia. They're dying off in droves, along with animals, plants, everything. And then funnily enough, in that period, because this is 74,000 years ago, right? This volcano has gone off. Funnily enough, about 73,000 years ago, the two basal haplogroups appear next to the Babel Mandab Strait and move west into Africa. What does that look like to you? It, yeah, <laughs> it looks like that our traditional views, again, they've just been completely upturned and we have to go back to the drawing board absolutely i mean it's clear evidence of people 
fleeing from a catastrophe and, and running into Africa and carrying those basal haplogroups with them, which means that they also existed already all across Eurasia and down into Australasia, that these, these two basal haplogroups are in fact were common already across the rest of the world outside of Africa. And that, so there's been this complete misunderstanding. Uh, and the second problem you encounter with this is that to have people coming out of Africa at that point is madness, right? Because in two recent studies, the climate, no, two separate like ancient paleoclimate studies, they found firstly that the, the climate in the Middle East and the Levant, right, was like catastrophically bad around about between sort of 72,000 to around 59,000 years ago, which is bang smack in that period when people are supposed to be migrating out, right? So you've got... The area we're supposed to be walking through said it's got the worst droughts and arid conditions that they've like ever been able to detect for the region. So you've got almost like no water, no plant life, nothing to eat. So this green corridor has turned into just a bleak, catastrophic landscape of death, right, which we're supposed to be walking happily into. And then a separate study found that the same conditions were in place in northeast Africa. Right. So, they, so even to get to that exit, they had to walk through like a bleak hellscape. Right. So, so what is the motivation of people down in sub, like sub-equatorial Africa who are living in like their sort of paradise, right, that's unaffected by Toba and that hasn't got this stuff going on, to suddenly, <laughs> for no reason at all, wander north you know into the grimmest conditions you could imagine and like just keep going you know with it getting worse and worse the further they head like you know what i mean like these are humans like us i know that like, you and i are not going to keep going towards like you know death if we could turn back and go back to our like sunny village and you know, there's no way yeah so, yeah come to think of it it does i i did kind of think sometimes that i mean these this idea that people want to go from where it's warm and sunny and why would they want to move northward where things are just colder and colder and colder the further you go you have to have reasons i mean during temperate times yeah people do stuff but when it's like really cold to the north when it's you know when there's massive problems you don't see those kind of movements of people and like now that they're detecting that that's the situation instead of turning around and saying oh it doesn't make sense all they said was perhaps humans were forced to move because of terrible conditions it's like like you can't have it both <laughs> ways because for years and years and years they said oh green corridors like encouraged africans to move out into eurasia now it's bleak devastation encouraged them to you know what i mean it's you can't win every which way you want it you know what i mean it's to me that is like the heights of like um, so arrogance where like you know no matter what the evidence says you're not dropping your theory I think that that is like really arrogant uh, that they won't even turn around and say, you know what, maybe we need to revisit this. The evidence is going completely against us. Um, on top of that, we know that we found evidence that Australasians, you know, the Aboriginals in Australasia were on their continent going back well over 65,000 years ago. Um, most of the evidence points into towards 70, 80,000 and beyond. And you're still talking about a migration from, from 60,000 years ago that populates Australasia. Now, like, how did they do that then? Like, did they have a time machine? Because they're arriving in Australasia before the migration starts. Yeah, this just proves all the more that uh, our minds are inside boxes and we are taught things that are probably not even true. Absolutely. And, and things that are provably not true in that respect. I mean, and. And when you look at it, and this is what my argument is, partly you know, one of the arguments in the book, which I say is perhaps the strongest and most important argument, is that when you have this cataclysmic event, 
I mean, that there was people living all across Eurasia. So, you know, forget about this idea. People are just coming out of Africa and blah, blah. There is an established population of, of multiple kinds of humans, right? Neanderthals, Denisovans, modern humans, others that we don't even know the names of, right? They're living all across Eurasia from Africa to Australasia. Basically, the whole habitable world is populated, right? And then 74,000 years ago, the volcano goes off, yeah? It wipes out the people in Southeast Asia, pretty much all of them. And it also causes this this catastrophe across Eurasia. Um, Neanderthals, to some degree, some of them survive in some pockets because they're better adapted to cold conditions than we are. Uh, Denisovans don't do very well, and we don't do very well. Um, but you have survival zones obviously in the southern hemisphere and the only survival zones that you can reach from eurasia obviously are australasia and south africa so you have what's called two like founder populations so you have this kind of founder effect which is where you get a snapshot of the genetic diversity of all those humans of just the survivors you know in these two pockets and then as as the conditions change you know and obviously as they improve people start to then be able to come back out uh, and with with the climate disasters learned away blocking the africans up until about fifty nine thousand years ago they're still kind of stuck but the australasians start to move north before them and that's why we have a repopulating of eurasia which begins about sixty thousand years ago as the out of africa people have said sixty thousand years ago i don't dispute the dates and the debates these dates are in the genetics you can find that there's evidence of um of this spread of people and a divergence in the DNA around that period. So I don't argue with that, but what I argue with is where it's beginning. Because if you look at the, the evidence for where the oldest groups of fully modern humans, you know, like us, basically our people, if you like, where they seem to appear first, it seems like Southeast Asia. It's in Australasia, Southeast Asia, then East Asia, then Central Asia. They arrive in, in Europe, right, around about 40,000, 45,000 years ago, right? You've already got them in in asia sixty thousand years ago does that sound like it's coming out of africa to you no not when you at look all. at that when you look at that map are you telling me that it makes any sense that the oldest populations coming out of africa are in east asia and in australasia and that they're moving through central asia towards europe i mean europe's really near to like north africa like if you're coming out of north africa like why is it you're not reaching europe pretty early on in this story why is it the last place i mean it doesn't make sense only makes sense if these Africans are trapped and they've not been able to move up or they've chosen not to, you know, combined with the fact they know there's a disaster to the north. So they're staying in their nice area, whereas down in Southeast Asia, you've got this movement of people. And it's not, the, you know, not only the common sense, but we see that in the genetics. We see that the Australasian genome splits from that of what we consider to be Africans around about 72,000 years ago, that date again. Uh, and that's because you've had this population in the middle which has been destroyed right so you've severed the gene flow between australasia and africa the region is now split and they found that yes that what we consider to be early africans and early australasians they split about seventy-two thousand years ago that day again just after the toba disaster uh and that then there's a split between them and eurasians right at around about sixty thousand to fifty thousand years ago during this populating of eurasia i.e Eurasians are splitting from Australasians about 60,000 years ago and the, the Australasians have already split from that African group 72,000 years ago because of the disaster. So what I'm giving to people is really fact-based common sense, right? Where I supply you the studies, I supply the papers, supply the archaeology uh, and then I also say look, 
this is also simple common sense that like a child can understand you know it's, it's not a complex thing where you know you have to go through all of these studies they're there if you want them but i'm also supplying simple common sense yeah that's that's definitely turning things upside down a bit in your opinion could this point to there having been some kind of ancient astronauts or or some force that was making humans more intelligent or more civilized in that Mesopotamia area? Well, I don't, I don't find the, that kind of side of it myself. So certainly not the Anunnaki type side, which I've, I know people is a common view, but I'll I just say that I don't see that anything particularly special happens in that period because as I say, we've already got, you know, um, like earlier signs of, of you know high intelligence and megalith building and and possibly if things like gunang padang pan out you know that we may have large megaliths in indonesia going back well over 12,000 years ago or at least 12,000 years ago um there's signs of complex you know thinking there's art in indonesia going back 500,000 years ago on a the trinil shell which is an engraved shell um so i mean i think higher thinking and all that that's well underway after that event 800,000 years ago so if there is this interaction, if you like, from something outside of humanity, then it, for me, it goes back to that earlier point 800,000 years ago. That's not to say that you know, intelligences of the universe have not been taking an interest in our, our world or interacting. And obviously people are seeing stuff every day. I, I've had my own experiences. I've seen things in the sky. Millions of other people have. There's, you know, there's thousands of stories of, of interaction with, you know, non-human intelligences. Um, so, have we been shepherded along? Have we been poked here and there to do stuff? Yeah, I'd say there's a, a darn good chance of that. But I, I think the real, the big changes, you know, happen that in that earlier period. Anything that's been done, you know, always going on uh, beyond that, I think is on a much smaller scale that perhaps somebody, you know, somebody somewhere gets an experiment done on them or a small group of people or, or you know, something is done to maybe push people in a certain direction and like some of the cataclysms that happened we don't you know i can't write off as to whether or not that they're done from outside i know obviously to a, a an ingrained skeptic you know there's oh well you know that's nonsense but we don't know like we don't know that if uh, if there's an advanced species out there in the galaxy if it wants to push a comet towards us to change things look, we have no way of knowing if that happened um so i mean i i'd say that yeah we have to keep an open mind and we have to sort of look for evidence that some of these events could be directed did they have benefits or did they push us a certain way you know because it, it is sort of funny that certainly in respect to some of these events it does seem to push us a certain way um and that, as i say a cataclysm led to to this most recent repopulating and obviously to changes in in humans because i would say that at that point you're pushing together a lot of these lineages that have been living spread across Eurasia. Because once you're pushed into a corner, you know, groups that probably wouldn't have interbred, you know, end up interbreeding and mixing. So you're creating new forms, if you like, of humans. Um, so if this was a grand experiment, you know, you could see that if you were from some, you know, nth level intelligence or whatever, who can play the long game, that, yeah, certainly some of these events, you know, could be directed. You know, I don't, I've got no way to say that they haven't. I can't prove they are, but I, I can certainly see how that they're possible. Yeah, there, there's really an infinite amount of possibilities. We can't get sucked into a dogmatic approach, even to things like no. ancient astronauts. We got to keep an open mind. For for all we know, there could have been these huge wars between 
proto-humans or different species of humans. Mm -hmm. There's just so many different ways it could have played out. Absolutely. And with the fossil record being limited, you know, we only have what we have to go on, you know, and it's, you know, that makes it, you know, always a little bit fragmentary because, you know, there could have been, and there probably were, you know, many other kinds of what we might think of as fairly anatomically modern humans. I mean, and like, we also have to wonder what, what did they achieve? Some of these, these guys up in Eurasia, so guys and gals, you know, that, um, you know, they spread across that vast region, perhaps for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, they had a lot of time to do stuff, you know, uh, that we may have come back in, you know, our group 60,000 years ago. But I mean, they've had a lot, there was a lot of time up there for things to happen. I, you know, it's hard to accept that there was nothing that we would have considered to be a recognizable high cultural civilization, you know, in that period somewhere, um, or, or many of those, because I mean, it is a long time. And so I, I keep an open mind about that, that we just simply haven't found the direct evidence or that the evidence has been misinterpreted. Because, I mean, um, for example, uh, one area that I'm quite skeptical about, if you look at the Olmec in, in Mesoamerica, that, you know, people tend to say, well, you know, you've got these Olmec heads, right? And that, you know, they're assumed to be the same age as other Olmec, you know, sites and archaeology. I don't believe that. Right? Because when you look at them, you look at the images of the old mech heads and when they found them, they found like buried like meters under the ground and stuff. Some of them. You can see these holes with these guys digging them up and like and you look at the faces and you compare them to how the old mechs generally drew themselves, right? And, and look at the old mech art, which is definitely old mech art. They look very Asiatic looking people, right? And you look at the old mech heads, doesn't look anything like the same people. Right. So, so sometimes we can take take an artifact and think, well, that's nearby to where these people live therefore it's theirs and like because you can't directly date stone you're left with that problem that you can only infer how old a stone carving is you know by its context and so if you misunderstand that context you know or, or if an item has been dug up reburied dug up reburied you've got no real way of knowing how old that is uh, and so it may well be that there are you know finds that are made you know across eurasia which are assumed to be quite modern but are not you know, they are incredibly old. So the those Olmecs, it sounds like those big. You're saying those big heads were not even made by what we think of as the Olmec I, people. I, no, I don't believe they're made by them at all. Oh wow! I don't think there's any way to really show that they were. I mean, they, you look at them. Honestly, I'd advise anyone listening to go and Google Olmec art and have a look at the the figurines and things that they made. And you look, and the guys look Asian. Right. And you look at those heads. They don't look Asian to me. They look either Australasian or African. I would say that they're Australasian, but they're Australasian Aboriginals, because obviously my work shows that these Australasian Aboriginals are the the first people to to recover the lands of of um, Eurasia and the Americas. But they may even be older than that. They may be from one of these older waves that goes back 100,000 or 200,000 years ago. Uh, and these old, and these, remember the Olmec as well are the people that gave the world the Mayan calendar. They passed it on oh, to the Mayans, wow. the, the long count calendar. So this, this actually may be extraordinarily old, you know, system passed down from a much older civilization. Uh, they, obviously, as we know as well, the Mayans inherited in incredible mathematical knowledge incredible astronomical knowledge right not to say that they couldn't do it themselves obviously but they inherited some of this from the olmec and who were these old you know who who did the olmec get some of this from because if they've got remains there you know artifacts which are pre-olmec which look like they are depicting people from somewhere completely different from a completely different epoch uh you know there's a maybe an unbroken tradition there going back to to these to people living who knows when 
you know, 100,000 years ago, maybe more. We don't know. And I'd advise anyone to go and look at that because it's something you can test yourself quite easily by looking at the, the way they normally portray themselves. And I don't believe there's any way to argue that these are Olmec faces. Uh, yeah, Bruce, you sent me a picture uh, that actually linked the aboriginals to other places on the globe. That was really fascinating. Defi- there seems to definitely be some hard evidence for that particular theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they found um, genetic um, traces of basically of an early population of, of Australasians um, detected amongst like isolated Brazilian tribes, for example. I mean, that, that they, you know, these are the people, some most isolated people on the planet. So obviously they haven't mixed with other groups much, you know. Uh, they've inbred a lot, if you like. Um, so they've retained some very old genes. And some of these genes uh, are most closely related to the oldest, you know, genomes of Australasian type people. Um, and they also, the oldest skulls found in Southern America, uh, or South America, sorry, uh, are also of called proto-australoid you know the, the morphology the way that the skull is structured is basically that of you know of ancient australasian people um you find that the earliest people in in east asia also were considered to be proto-australoids um i mean all of this is you know easily checked people can go away and look at that themselves that the proto-australoids were sort of everywhere uh, and that they are definitely basal to all eurasians you know that they've come out of these proto-australoids and it's not just their genes and their skulls in fact there's a um there's a tribe in brazil one of the same tribes off the top of my head don't remember the name of the tribe but that one of the same tribes that has these ancient genes also has similar mythology because they have for example the belief that when you look up at the sky right that along the dark rift of the milky way there is a giant rear Right, and a bird. This is a bird called a rhea, which is a, a large, flightless bird. Right, which is a close relative of the emu. And if you ask, "Oh, what well, the Aboriginals?" You say, "Well, what kind of things do you see when you look up there?" And it's a giant emu along the dark rift. <laughs> so you can tell me that that's a coincidence, right? That you've got this like remote, isolated jungle tribe who not only has genes from some ancient visitation or whatever of you know these Aboriginals, but even has their story of this giant emu spread along the Milky Way. I mean, it's not reasonable to say that they've that those two things can be coincidental. So, so you've got contact with what was already an existing high culture that already had those astronomical understandings tens of thousands of years ago when it reached America and passed that on to people there. So, the, you know, these are real world based ideas, not something where I just sit there and I think, you know, flight of fantasy, uh, you know, I think there's a connection that you know, these are established connections that are being established by academics, but it's just, they're not, they're not putting them together into a broader context and sharing that with the public. They're providing people with isolated finds where they'll say, oh, we found some genes of these people and then a separate study. Oh, we found something over there. And so obviously there's a rush of media. The news comes out. Uh, you get this flash pan thing of that. Oh, you know, ooh, the story's changed again. There's this. But you never really get that thing of well, what is the current total picture based on all of these? Uh, and that's why people don't really know what the hell does all this mean? Uh, and that's why I've tried to put this together for people into, you know, into one book. And obviously I say there'll be other books, which will basically bring those finds together um, and then give people the context. And obviously my interpretation of the context, but with the source data, so you can decide for yourself whether 
perhaps I've misinterpreted it in some way, but you've got the data there. You can just go to the references, you can find the papers, you can look at them and you can see, you know, perhaps things that I haven't found as well or reinterpret it. But either way, you know, I'm not just saying, believe me, it's like this. I'm saying, look, (laughs) these are the top academics in the world that I'm going to for this information and I'm putting it together into a picture um, and then it's up to the reader to decide, does that picture make sense? And... One topic that I did want to get into a little bit was this whole thing about giants. I understand you've you've actually went and looked for some bones before. Yeah, back in um, two thousand and um, two thousand and fourteen or thirteen, I was um, involved with research of a site in the Amazon jungle. I was living in Ecuador at the time. Uh, there was a megalithic complex found there, a number of artifacts that appeared to be strange tools, amongst them um, some that were considered to be oversized hammers or giant hammers. And when I first heard of the place, the guy that told me about it, who had been in, on an expedition there that had kind of uncovered it, if you like, um, he described it as a lost city of giants. So that was how the place got its name and anyone can google uh ecuador's lost city of giants they'll find many many articles and blogs that have covered that and quite a lot of youtube videos and even the mainstream media the telegraph in the uk covered it but more in the context of it being potentially an as uh, sorry an inca site um, but there's a lot out there about that so anyway i was i was sort of um i suppose the the person that spent the most time and energy on investigating that um not only interviewing people that had been there but you know researching about the area um ex- and then did two direct expeditions myself into the site um and that because that got media attention basically i was contacted by the science channel who were interested in going there and doing a you know some filming uh, but what happened in the end is they chose to do an expedition into the georgian caucasus because it's hard to carry your stuff into the jungle for a big swamp, basically. That's what it came down to, is that, you know, there was, it was going to be really difficult to do the filming. So they said instead, look, do you want to come with us and we'll go up into the mountains in Georgia and go on this other search for giant bones involving some local researchers in Georgia um, and that you'll be basically our English kind of speaking, you know, like team leader, you know, for this, because um, obviously everyone else was Georgian. And they wanted someone, I guess, with English, their first language, who had a sort of knowledge of the subject to kind of, you know, be the front person. So I ended up, yeah, flying to Georgia and hiking up into the Caucasus with uh, local, with local researchers um, to uncover some bones of giants. They'd already found bones of giants, basically. And we were going back to see if there was more um, and that these could then be, you know, analyzed. So we did this big hike into the the... Bajormi Karaguli National Park, which is a vast, one of the biggest national parks in Europe. Um, you know, unexploited forests, you know, going up there into then into the mountains. And like it's got the stuff there, wolves, bears, and all that, you know, it's like the middle of nowhere. Um, and going up, sort of hiking up into this mountain. And all the way along, you know, once you got quite deep in, I was seeing, you know, shaped blocks and things, you know, like at the side of the paths and stuff. And it was quite apparent to me that at some point there had been some kind of high culture you know in that deep national park uh, and the higher we go into the mountains the more of that i was seeing you know as someone who's been to ancient sites you know you start to recognize what a carved block you know that's fallen off of a wall or a building looks like um and there, there was multiple signs of that and then eventually we got up to the top where there was a like a ruined temple 
which is where these bones had been found. Um, but there was complexities about they hadn't really finalised the permits to do the proper dig, so they didn't do a full dig in the end. But there was another bone was supplied to us by somebody from the previous mission. They did date it. They tested it. They said that it was about a thousand years old. I think it came to in the end that that these these like seven to eight foot high people had been like living at this site. Um, so they were within that historical period. Um, but I can say that there were some other things up there that I don't think had anything to do with that historical period because there was there was like blocks that were kind of made out of like a mixture of stones and bones all fused together. Oh, like wow. something out of a horror movie, mate. <laughs> That's all I can tell you because I don't know who, who was there and what like what the hell was going on, but it was like something out of a horror movie, like, you know, just these weird blocks of stone with pieces of bone melted and fused into them. And because uh, the guy sort of said, look, come on, I'll show you something. There's more bones somewhere else. Because when it was going a bit wrong about the permits and I thought, oh, like, you know, they're going to show me some like fox bones or something. You know, I wasn't thinking it's going to be anything. And I, he showed me these things. He's just like, what the hell is that? You know, it looked like the stones were fused together by melted bone. And then there was just pieces of bone just sticking out and stuff. And it's like, are you telling me someone was building with like, bone you know what i mean making blocks with bones and stones mixed together i mean i never heard of that anywhere else really i mean that doesn't seem normal to me it's uh pretty weird and then there was the entrance way to what like a filled in tunnel and that also had this bone stone material around the lip of the tunnel and, and there's a rumor that somewhere up in that area there is a buried giant that is like in a like a cavern uh in a sarcophagus or something so i don't know if that tunnel was the entrance to that um but it's one of those sites that in the back of my mind i've always thought oh, one day you know that has got to be dug up because i don't know what's down in that tunnel but that site is so super weird that you know it really begs a full you know expedition with ground penetrating radar and you know like the full full thing because you know not only is it near that ruined temple that had giants but it was just super weird i, I you know I, I, i'll be honest I, I one of the strangest feelings i've ever had was being up there and i think that, that you know there is legends of giants and stuff in georgia there's a whole thing about ancestry of um like noah and you know being connected to the area and the great flood and giants and there's a, there's a whole huge mythology there of multiple kinds of giants i wouldn't be surprised at all if they dug down into that into that tunnel found some sort of weird sarcophagus with a giant in it you know i'll just <laughs> throw that out there i mean it was so weird the whole site the whole thing that it's one of those sites that you know if i could independently afford to just run an expedition you know and bring all the, the kit i would definitely go there with the, the lidar the drones the everything and just i think that there's something really extraordinary up on that mountain yeah, the whole giant thing, it's always been super fascinating to me. There's people claiming that these remains and bones are taken away and hidden by museums and, and the government. And I don't really know about any of that, if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. But I sure. do, yeah, I do think that it, giants don't necessarily mean ancient aliens or aliens or anything supernatural mm-hmm. because like you pointed out, with with your whole thing, there were mm-hmm. many different groups of humanoid types back then. Maybe some of them were just very large. I don't think that's out of the question. No, it's not only is it not out of the question, but there's evidence that, that actually suggests that. Because, I mean, there's there's been finds in South Africa of um, what's called Homo hydropogensis, which is a kind of like now now being recognized as 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 an ancestor of Neanderthals, right? But there was a period down in South Africa, around about... Hmm, if I remember rightly, about somewhere around 
400, 300,000 years ago, they reckon where these, a, like a group of them or a population of them, went through a period of gigantism uh, and that routinely that they were over seven foot tall and they found um, not only some like large bones, you know, from these, but also oversized stone tools like giant stone axes and stuff so so it's, it's not only like a reasonable thing to say it is true that yeah there's been periods where certain hominin groups have been you know giant sized and seven foot or so you know is typically the heights associated with what has been called giants you know in the giant research area usually they're about seven or eight foot tall and you know they're not normally talking about people that are 10 foot or 15 foot or anything like that you know not jack and the beanstalk type giants um for the most part it's just been very tall people um and certainly in north america where you know finds have been made in in burial mounds you know they're usually it's about seven foot you know so we do know that that is not that abnormal you know for a a member of the human family um so i don't really see any reason why there couldn't have been um, you know, a population of abnormally tall humans that have become known as the giants. I mean, it's it's not that silly. I mean, obviously, people have put onto the subject stuff that makes it sound silly, you know, but not in itself being silly. Um, you know, and as I say, if there was two, if there was two giant-sized people up in that burial on the mountain, that itself is extraordinary. And as the show said, the odds of two people with like giganticism you know, being buried in the same place on the same mountain in the same sort of small country is like a million to one. So, I mean, uh, it does tend to suggest that maybe there was a population that for whatever reason was on average very tall. So I think that uh, we shouldn't be so quick to just dismiss the whole thing as being a silly subject. And the whole gigantopithes thing probably fits in somewhere because uh, that would explain the whole Bigfoot thing. Well, it could be, you know, and again, they had legends there in Georgia of Bigfoot in the in the woods. And so, so it's a, you know, it's a fairly universal theme. They have it, the theme here as well in Australia. They have uh, Yowie, which is another Bigfoot. So, I mean, it, it literally it's, you know, that story seems to be global. And obviously when there's a global story, you know, there's a root of truth in there somewhere. Like we may not know what that exactly that root is, but I don't think that that's, you know, a totally invented story. Because it's amazing that it's, you know, it's traveled the world and it's persevered all the way up to modern days, you know, in pretty much all nations, you know, from here to Tibet, to to Georgia, to, to America. You know, to, to me, there's obviously a kernel of truth in that story. Now, whatever that is, whether it's the memory of a creature that used to live or a time when people were bigger, you know, whatever it is, I think that there's a reasonable explanation at the core of that story. Yeah, this is uh, this is also very fascinating. We've really gotten into it tonight. We've gone over the origins of the human race or perhaps a more accurate picture, which is very contradictory to what most people out there uh, have been taught all their lives. And I absolutely love this stuff. And I, I, I'm very grateful to be here with you, Bruce, now so early on in your in your writing career. Uh, what are some of these books that you're thinking about publishing in the future i'm curious what types of topics you plan to talk about because it sounds you're sounds like you're going to go uh, d- much deeper into the paranormal side of things yeah we we there's a good chance we will i mean my my wife is actually a, a medium and a shaman so i mean i'd like to do some some writing that will incorporate some of of her work 
um, and some of my obvious experiences in that area. So we will almost certainly will do a you know a co-authored book on the sort of shamanic um, side of things, you know, at some point. Um, but yeah, I do need to do tidy up the Into America book and also the the other one, which will be a bit my I guess a bit of a an account of my adventures, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of places, you know, I've been to, you know, to Egypt, to Mexico, obviously I'm in Australia now, I've been around the, the megaliths of Southwest England and, uh, been out to Asia to, to, um, the Khmer ruins. And so, so I mean, I, I'd like to put that into, you know, a kind of a narrative, you know, nonfiction narrative kind of adventure, you know? Um, so that will hopefully be a book I'll get done next year um into america is probably the first one and then once i've done that i may revisit uh, my own sort of investigation of um some of the more controversial claims in prehistory um so we'll have a, you know that's probably there but i think after that yeah i would probably go back to yeah, the other more paranormal type stuff as i say this sort of shamanic side of things and and look to write in that area as well um and i, I won't write off other topics you know if, if as i find interesting things that come up you know i guess if they're significantly fascinating and important then i would write on them you know so we'll see but definitely yeah there will be you know a delve back into the consciousness and and um you know psychic shamanic all of that side at some point um because I've had so many of my own experiences, you know, I, I don't, I can't dismiss it, you know, because it'd be sort of like silly in a way if I then say, well, I can only write on academic type, you know, stuff. because those are experiences that a lot of people are having, you know, there's millions of us have been having them over, uh, I imagine probably millions of years. Um, so it's a legitimate area of study and a legitimate area for people to, to understand more of. Um, so yeah, that, that will be the other area I go into. And we are approaching the end of the interview, but I'd like to go ahead and just open things up for you one more time and give you an opportunity to just say whatever you'd like to say to my audience and please follow that up with anything that you would like to plug. Okay. Yeah, I'll just say to everybody to really to, you know, obviously, firstly, keep an open mind. Read articles with with skepticism when you see these releases that come out from the mainstream saying, you know, oh, you know, history's been rewritten again. Put that into a bit more of the context that I'm telling you that although they're admitting that this rewrites things, what they actually in the end do is tend to just push those back in. They hammer them back into the same, you know, the square peg into the round hole. So so don't immediately think, oh, yeah, they're changing it all because they're not really. There's a tiny change and they hammer it all back in. Um, obviously, I'd like people to ideally take the time to get a hold of my book. It's at the moment, it's on a 30% reduction on Amazon. So it's like $6 something. So, I mean, if you look at the prices of all the other books on this subject area, you'll see that I'm doing my best to almost sort of give this away because I want people to, to, you know, to know about it. Also, you know, even if you're not going to read the book, you know, support my work if you can because it means i can get onto the other subjects that you're really interested in a lot faster um and also you can give the books away to people that you know would enjoy it it really help me because you know if i have to spend my time nine to five work i would take me a lot longer getting those other books out to you um and debunk and basically overthrowing this paradigm which is what i'm aiming to do uh, i need a lot more support um so please please you know to consider getting the book for a friend or whatever uh, visit my websites i have ancientnews.net 
I have brucefenton.info and also um, earthforall.net. Um, so any of those you can find me on. And I'm on Twitter at Ancient News uh, as well as obviously Facebook. So I'm, I'm out there if you want to sort of connect with me. And again, I'd really appreciate any support, sharing my work, getting people involved. I'm not very famous compared to, you know, some of the other people in this um, this area. But my work is really important. You know, I can see that we need to fight back against the what is the dogmatic paradigm that says all of us basically within it so please help yeah absolutely everybody please go out and buy bruce r fenton's book and don't think that i did not notice that you are offering that book at a very reasonable price i went on to amazon and i saw that so uh, i definitely hats off to you for making that so affordable to all of us and and to mm-hmm. have this type of work so affordable because there's a lot of books out there that are much more on the woo <laughs> side of things that they charge 40 dollars yep. for absolutely i mean i've looked and especially kindle as you know i mean i my, my books generally i have it set at 2.99 i think it it's at three dollars something because of Amazon or whatever. But but you know you look around and you see most of the big names you know in our our genre. Their Kindle books even are like twenty dollars and stuff, fifteen dollars, ten dollars, and like you know there's no real cost in in printing it. So I mean I, they're obviously I, I don't I mean I know that's the publishers more than the researchers. So I'm not blaming them, but you know I am making this really accessible because I think that that's like quite expensive to get, which often what is actually you're getting is rehashing of old stories and stuff and that you know i'm providing something that is new novel important and could potentially change the whole paradigm and i'm trying my best for it to be you know available to anyone you know and again as the you know the book the print version at six dollars something at the moment so and with christmas coming up you know buy a couple of copies because i don't see other people giving their books you know away at that kind of price so um and that is intentional i would like it to actually reach people not just fund my life you know i'd like people to actually know about this awesome thank you for doing that and thank you for appearing on the show tonight bruce i definitely want to stay in touch and why don't we do this again in the future Great. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. We can go into some other sides of things. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, and I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for listening. You have a good night, my friend. Okay. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it. That was Bruce R. Fenton. Check him out on Amazon. You've got to remember to put the R in there because if you Google just Bruce Fenton, you'll get all kinds of people that are not him. So keep that in mind. Boy, what a fascinating interview, because that is what we do here on End of Days Radio. This is a show where we go much further into the void, into the darkness of space. If there is even a space, who knows? Perhaps the Earth is flat even. What do we really know? I like to explore anything that goes against the grain. I like to explore anything that offers ideas that are unconventional and might help open our minds or see things from a different perspective, because that's what we all are really here on earth. We are humans. We are explorers. We are experiencing a journey into our own selves and the world around us. And it's very exciting. I do want to take a little bit of a break I've got a lot to talk about. I've got quite a bit to talk about. I've had all kinds of things happen and heard all kinds of feedback from you guys. And I got to get into it. And I've got all these news stories and uh, 
letters and oh boy it's gonna be quite the night so stay tuned i'm gonna play some music and i'll be back in about 10 minutes and welcome back to end of days radio this is your host daniel broadcasting to you from the beautiful seattle washington here on the pacific coast the pacific northwest right here oh wow there's so much to talk about i don't even know where to start i think what i want to do though is first tell you guys or remind you guys that you can call in at 209-348-9810 that's 209-348-9810 or you can add ninja shoes 777 on skype and I also want to begin this part of the show. This is the after interview period. I like to call it wrap up or the news section or fan roundtable. There's so many different ways we've described this portion of the show, but no description really seems perfect. It just is what it is. It's end of days radio. We're very loose. And I don't mean loose in a Kim Kardashian way. I mean loose as in we could do anything at any time. No offense to Kim Kardashian. She has a very nice rear end. It's very big. I've heard that it's photoshopped, but perhaps in some cases, fantasy is better than reality. I'm going to go ahead and read a letter from one of you lovely end of days radio listeners out there. This is a long-time listener and friend of the show, Woozy. He wrote in and he says, Yo, Daniel, how are you doing? Great shows. I listen to it when I'm working. I'm a delivery guy, and it's fun to listen to your show instead of music all day. So I must say that I like the longer shows. When I see it under two hours, I'm kind of bummed. Smiley face. Not a complaint. It's a compliment. Smiley face. Anime is awesome. Whoever thinks it's for kid is old and old is boring, so feel sorry for them. Smiley face. Have a great end of day. Have a great end of the year days. Greeting, Woozy. Thanks, Woozy. That means quite a bit to me. How kind of you. How kind. I do really like to do this show. I do like to keep it very loose. I do like to make it a longer show, but there are reasons why. The show became shorter. I was thinking more shows that are shorter would be better for various reasons. A lot of it had to do with my schedule, so that factors into things. I do have to work like most of you human beings out there who aren't who aren't inheriting tons of money or who aren't trophy wives of some capacity and just stay home all day and spend their husband's money or Vice versa, what do you call gigolos who just stay home all day and spend their wife's money? I, I'm not one of those people. I work for a living. I'm a real man. I'm Dan. I'm the D-A-N. I'm the all-American man. I work for a living. I'm a blue-collar guy just like all of you out there. Don't forget that. So, yeah, my schedule does play into things. And there was a while where I was doing... Shows that could be as short as two hours or even an hour and 45 minutes. 
And I've gotten a lot of feedback about those, and in general, people seem to prefer a longer show. Yes, you End of Days Radio listeners out there, you seem to like these long shows. I thought that perhaps it was holding the show back, I was going too long, people don't want to hear me run my mouth for too long, people don't want to hear super long interviews. I was wrong, they do. Just like I was wrong about the cussing and the swearing, you guys inform me that you actually love when I start screaming cunt, 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 and do things of that nature. I'm not going to try to explain it. It seems to go against conventional thinking, but this is the end of day's radio audience. And you want what you want. I'm going to give you what you got, what you got's coming. You want what you want, and I'm going to give you what you got's coming. So let's, let's give a big fuck you to Wall Street right there. Or fuck you to the man. Fuck you to the system. Fuck you to the powers that be holding us down all the time. It is time for a revolution in human thought and consciousness. It's not going to be a violent revolution. It's going to be an info war. Like our buddy Alex Jones and all of his loony sort of promos that he cuts. Who knows if he's a disinfo agent or if he isn't. Perhaps he's just a man. Perhaps he's not. Who knows? But this is indeed an info war, and we are fighting back with information. They make a move, we make a move. It's a game of chess. It's Machiavellian. It's the art of war. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyways. So, we are going to try to do longer shows here. I mean, I figure you guys... I'll do a show week, and... Rather than try to force two shows in there or try to force, you know, try to try to make a lot of shows work. Why not just do a long show and then you guys have a whole week to listen to it? Sometimes two weeks because the show does go on break. I mean, I think one show a week is enough if it's a long show, isn't it? I know there's other podcasts out there that you want to listen to. I know that there's Netflix show that you got <laughs> Netflix shows that you got to listen to. So. If I can occupy just one slot in your otherwise busy schedule and your busy life, I'm grateful. And I'll try to make it long for you hardcore fans out there that want a lot of content. I'm not going to go on air if I don't have anything to talk about. I mean, I'm not going to throw crap at the wall. I'm not an ape or a proto-human or a homo erectus sitting here throwing my poop against the wall. Did homo erectus even do that? I find it ironic that his name is Homo Erectus, and all of a sudden the Homo Erectuses spread around the Earth very quickly and rapidly, almost like there are a bunch of horny Homo Erectuses. You got to give props to that particular lineage of proto-humans for their quick spreading out. I do love that name, Homo Erectus. <laughs> it just sounds funny, right? Homo Sapien. Homo erectus is superior to Homo sapien. <laughs> okay. Enough of proto-humans. They are important, but there's much to talk about. I do have a letter from a lady who did not like last show very much. We are going to get into some news, but I've got one more letter to throw at you. She did not like the guest, and she did not like the fact that I allowed this guest to come on and tell her story. 
And I invited this person to come on and give and, and do a rebuttal on error if she wanted to exercise her free speech or exercise this platform called End of Days Radio, which is all about that. But she chose instead to just leave a comment on YouTube. But I will go ahead and read it because she seems like she wants to she wants to do some kind of rebuttal. So this is in regards to the last show with Cheryl. Wilkinson and the disappearance of Corey McKeague. This person is none of your business, and she is leaving a comment as a rebuttal to Cheryl Wilkinson's appearance on my last show. Okay, I'm going to read it now. This woman is a complete fantasist. I did not hear one true fact within that interview. She was not hacked and is a laughingstock over on Reddit. Gangstalking my arse. It's England. She says ours. And where the hell she gets those facts from that his family have pushed the flex story is wrong. They have kept a completely open mind and his mom has never once said that she did not think he had the phone on him. As for the info she says that was leaked over on Reddit, she was behind most of it along with the other two mods that run the now private threads. They get info from family and are friendly with them. But it's not the mom's side, it's the dad's side. Hmm, I'm pretty sure that Cheryl did say that. As for the old threads that she claims you can no longer access, she is wrong. And all it, it and it's all there on archive.is. All the proof of her and her ridiculous hacking tale, which is what made her stop posting. She cannot have been locked out of Reddit when she was still replying to the messages of a few other posters weeks later. Her excuse for not posting was that she had stopped following the case. I'm up to one hour in the interview, and I don't know whether to laugh or scream, scream at how mad this woman is. Okay, so that's another perspective on the whole thing. And of course, I don't mean any disrespect to Cheryl Wilkinson for reading that. I am simply reading a letter that I got sent to me. This is not my opinion. I'm just reading it as to be fair to the other side, since this other person claims that that was so wrong of me to have her on the show. But... I have to say that I don't really see anything that makes me doubt what Cheryl Wilkinson had to say. She seemed to be very objective about the whole thing and present a lot of theories as well as her personal account. And I don't see any evidence that what she's claiming is false. We can assume that they're false, but we don't really know that. But I do welcome anybody if they have some kind of problem with anything that was said on this show if you want to write in if you want to call in that's fine you can do that the call in number is 209-348-9810 you can call in anytime you can call in even when the show is not on air and maybe i'll if you leave me a message on skype i'll even because that number goes to my skype line so i will play it on air if you wish just let me know it's up to you. Do what you're going to do. The Seahawks, Sunday, defeated the number one team in the National Football League, the NFL. A lot of our players are incapacitated. They're out. And it was, wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good. We did not think that we would beat the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles. 
it was looking very bleak, but somehow we pulled it off. In the Battle of the Birds, we smashed the Eagles. Smashed. Sorry, you fans from Philadelphia, but you were smashed. Playoff hopes are looking up. If you're not a football fan, I apologize. I am a fan of those Hawks. And I have to throw my support out there, even though many of you probably just don't give a damn. But I do think that we can all enjoy football. The Super Bowl is one of the most watched things, period. I think that says a lot to how exciting the game can be. I know it's very dangerous. A lot of those guys get concussions, and sometimes people even die playing football. People die in boxing rings. People die doing cheerleading. Did you guys know that? Did you know that cheerleaders die all the time? When they toss them up in the air, sometimes they land and nobody catches them. Yeah, or they fall off the top of the pyramid. That's more dangerous than playing football. That's more dangerous than doing boxing or MMA. Yet, nobody really bats an eye to this incredibly dangerous dangerous sport of cheerleading. And nobody tells them to stop doing the pyramids or tossing each other 20 feet in the air. It's all very statusy and very tied into the way that our society and our schools are set up. It's it's considered to be a status symbol to be a cheerleader, and they cover up all the grisly death and destruction that happens in those high school gym practices. If you're in high school and you listen to this show, maybe you should do something. Maybe you should talk your friends out of doing that. <laughs> Okay, and moving on from the deadly sport of cheerleading, I did kind of want to talk about the idea, oh, you know what, let's do a news story, I'm sorry, this is too early for me to start going into these topics that I like to talk about, I've got some news stories here, we cannot skip the news, oh my god, I apologize. This news story comes from express.co.uk. I believe that we may have gotten news stories from this website before. This is a weird publication that comes out of the UK. It doesn't claim to be weird in any way, but they always seem to have these strange UFO stories and these strange stories in general. This one says, Proof of Rendlesham? U.S. airman who saw... UFO and aliens, in quotes, at air, at air base, he passes a lie detector. A key witness in the mysterious Rendlesham UFO case has reportedly sailed through a lie detector after insisting he saw alien beings floating beneath a triangle craft during the bizarre encounter. Yep, that whole Rendlesham UFO story is so weird, and really, in my opinion, probably one of the best cases that can vindicate and be provided as evidence of this entire UFO aliens thing. There's so many different accounts of what happened there from so many different people that were involved. And the fact that it happened, I believe it happened on a military base, didn't it? Or it was close. Reynolds Forest. 
I think that because of where it happened and how it happened and how many saw, this is one of the big pieces of proof that we have of the whole thing. The Rendlesham Forest incident. How many people know about that? How many of your friends do? How many of them know about the Phoenix Lights? How many people are really educated on this stuff? We have YouTube, but are people watching those videos or are they watching South Park streams? What's more popular? (laughs) And don't get me wrong, I love South Park, but it's amazing how little people know about this stuff and what has happened. Is it too weird? Why don't more people talk about this stuff? Instead, we're all worried about what Donald Trump did next or what he did last or what he's going to do next. It seems that everybody these days is obsessed obsessed with Donald Trump and sexual harassment between celebrities and famous people. That Those are really the only things you hear on the news lately. That's why we do this. That's why we do our news here on End of Days Radio. I do have another story. Don't think that's it. Don't think that that's all. Don't think that that is all the news I have for you, little lovelies out there. This comes from avclub.com. Interesting site. I might have to explore this place later. It says, never forget, Taylor Swift is actually an Illuminati clone of Anton LaVey's daughter. So this article claims, and it's got a picture of them two, it's got a picture of the two of them next to each other. It claims that Taylor Swift is a clone of Anton LaVey's daughter. I guess because they're both blonde and they both have skinny eyebrows and they wear makeup, I suppose that she's a clone. I'm looking at the picture side by side. I have to say the chin definitely looks different. And why would they need to clone her? She's the daughter of Anton LaVey, but I don't think she has any powers or anything like that, does she? Why would they need to clone her? And why would they need to make that clone into a celebrity? Is it some kind of... (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get the thinking behind that. I know that a lot of these people are from particular bloodlines, but still, I have to say that this most likely is disinfo or just a poor journalist trying to get attention or a poor excuse for a journalist. I just don't think so. That's just... I have an open mind, but come on. Come on. What would be the point? That Church of Satan is interesting, I have to say. It's it's strange how they always seem to talk about how they don't believe in God or things that are mystical, and then you find out they're doing all these rituals. Why would you practice magic or do rituals if you don't believe in spirituality or things like that. That doesn't make much sense sense to me. I think that's a much more interesting discussion than claiming that Taylor Swift is Anton LaVey's daughter. Sorry, but that's just stupid. Dumb da dum 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 No offense to the author of that article. (laughs) Uh... 
it seems that nowadays a lot of guys out there have this desire to be perceived as an alpha male. And what is an alpha male? An alpha male would be like the silverback of the group of gorillas or the leader dog in a pack of dogs. The idea is that if you are perceived as a leader, if you appear to be a very dominant person, very confident that you will be perceived as superior to other males by by females and by males and by everybody. It seems that you hear a lot of celebrities talking about being an alpha male or calling other guys beta males. You tend to hear stuff like that. It seems to be part of our culture now, this concept of being an alpha male. And I I think that it's probably not very scientifically accurate. And it's kind of a shitty way of thinking because you are walking around trying to be better than other people. Basically, if you think of yourself that way, it it certainly makes you seem a little insecure if you have to prove to other people that you're an alpha male. If you have to present an image that you're superior or you're tougher or you're this or you're that than people around you. And to just call yourself that, that's kind of douchey, isn't it? It sounds really immature and insecure, doesn't it? I'd say that it's probably not a good way of looking at things. I think that a much better way of looking at things, instead of trying to be an alpha male, why not try to be a god? Right? Like the whole EA co-editing thing, why try to be some fake person trying to look tough or look cool in today's society why are you trying to be a leader amongst your small group of douchebag friends when you could be a god wouldn't it be much better to be a god and isn't that what we all really are deep down aren't we just parts of god experiencing this world and reality from many different perspectives. Isn't that what we really are? Just little sparks of that God spark or that all spark, like they'd call it in transformers. Isn't that what it's really all about? Realizing that you are a God on some level and waking up from these chains, these chains of deception and perceptual illusions I'd say that's a lot better than being an alpha male just be yourself be yourself just don't give a fuck what people think don't plan out how you're going to present yourself to people don't even think about it just be you and that is way better than trying to be an alpha male I think
Now, some of you are going to judge me for this, I'm sure. But I have been thinking about digging through trash cans. <laughs> what are you talking about, Daniel? You're crazy. Why would you dig through a trash can? Well, I've been watching these videos on YouTube where people find crazy shit in dumpsters. Like they find guitars that are worth 20 grand or they find stuff that got thrown away from a store or they find all this valuable shit. It's It just shows you that one person's trash is another person's treasure. And by digging through dumpsters, you could find treasure. I mean, it's not like you're digging through shit. There shouldn't be any shit in there, right? But doesn't that sound kind of fun? To go go around at night and break into dumpsters and steal trash that nobody wants anyway? It's not stealing. It's not stealing. It's stuff that they're throwing away. It's disgusting how people litter and trash up the planet. There's nothing wrong with taking something that's getting thrown away anyways, right? So why not dig through dumpsters? (laughs) Why not find treasure buried that other people don't want? That sounds fun to me. That's almost like being... Indiana Jones and searching for treasure and mysteries without actually having to go into the jungle or go into the Temple of Doom. I think that anytime you can find adventure, why not pursue it? Whether you're into skydiving or exploring caves or or exploring underground cities full of homeless people, do what you want to do. Do what's fun. I even heard that there's people that put on night vision goggles and run around and film it at nighttime. And it's not like they're doing anything productive. They're just running around and having fun. I think they call it night ops. (laughs) And there's other people that go around and explore weird places. Like they explore abandoned missile silos and things like that. There's a lot of adventure out there. I think part of what it is, is I did not get married young. I did not start a family and have all this responsibility and weight on my shoulders at an early point in my adult life. And for those of you out there, it's nothing against you guys. I mean, that's how you choose to live your lives. You wanted to have a family right away. But I I didn't do that. I'm unmarried. I don't have any kids. So I have time where I can have adventure, where I can explore. I have that freedom because I don't have, I'm not tied down by those sort of responsibilities. I'm not saying I'm better or my way is right or it's better. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is how my life has gone. So I have no, I have no attachments that keep me from exploring and I can use that time to play guitar or read books about weird things or put on a podcast. So be glad, be glad you don't have to live a cookie cutter life or do things just like everybody else. 
Do you guys really think that marriage is always even going to be around? I mean, society has changed quite a bit, and there's so much divorce. Is it really always going to be around? I mean, do you even need a legal form of marriage? Can't you just jump over a broom together and just be together and be together as long as it lasts? I don't know. Some people really go for the traditional. I get that. Who wants to see the world radically change right before their eyes constantly? People get set in their ways. But things change, and things seem to change quick. Look at how things were back in the 60s. People were wearing bell bottoms, for Christ's sake sakes <laughs> or was that the 70s i don't even know i wasn't alive back then all i've got is wikipedia and youtube i have no time machine but if i did that would be great it'd be like doctor who right yes i am still watching dragon ball super i talked about dragon ball super last show and i'm continuing to watch it the first yeah, I know, I'm a big geek. But the first so many episodes, I watched the dubbed versions that had all the English voices on there, but those ran out, and I had to start watching the subtitled versions. And it's good. I mean, it's addicting. It has everything that makes Dragon Ball addicting. Freaking awesome battles, transformations, humor... If you have not, if you are a fan of anime or Dragon Ball or you watch Dragon Ball Z and you still have not gotten on the Dragon Ball Super bandwagon, now's the time, baby. Now's the time. You can watch it fucking for free online. Why wouldn't you? You can watch almost anything for free online anymore if you know where to look. So why don't you? Dragon Ball Super, everybody. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to all the real men and women out there who own up to their mistakes instead of blaming others and acting cowardly and playing the blame game. Do you have people like that in your workplace? Do you have people that play the blame game? They never admit to their own faults, but they always blame others and throw other people under the bus. It's so selfish, isn't it? And every workplace seems to have people like that. And it just makes people lose respect in you, lose respect for you. So don't do that. Don't play the blame game and don't kiss butt. Don't suck up to your bosses. Don't suck up to your managers because, trust me, it's pointless. If you are rewarded for sucking up, then you're in the wrong place because people that have integrity, if they know that somebody's sucking up to them, they're just going to dislike that person. It's not going to make them like you more. When you suck up, it doesn't make people like you more. It makes them lose respect for you. So just be yourself. And don't kiss any butt. Don't suck any dong. You don't need knee pads. You don't need lip gloss. You don't need any of that stuff. Don't suck up. Don't suck up to your friends either. Everybody's the same. Everybody's equal. We are all gods. Seriously, though, don't suck up. A lot of us out there in the world are different. We are 
the Misfits. This is the Island of Misfit Toys here on End of Days Radio. <laughs> We're an island of misfit toys. We are the island of misfit toys. Blah, blah, girls. Blah, blah, boys. A, a squirt gun that squirts jam in a train with square wheels. A lion with wings. And a jar of some dills. Because Christmas time is here. That's how that song goes, right? From Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's what we are. We are the misfits of society. We are the outcasts. We are the freaks and geeks. The wannabes and sneaks. We are the ones who take peaks. But it's hard being different. Hey, I know. I know this. It's hard. It's easy to fit in. It's easy to like yourself if you were handed everything from an early age. But for some people, it's not that easy. For most people, it's not that easy. Life can sometimes be a journey of learning to love yourself. It can be hard. And especially if you're into things that are weird like this. Aliens. Demons. Ghosts and goblins. Illuminati. Psychic abilities. I mean, you start talking about that stuff, and let's face it, people are going to think you're weird. It's true. There's no reason to not admit it. It's the elephant in the room, right? This is why people don't like to get into this stuff because they're afraid of what people think. Right? It's true. I mean, th- we've talked about this on the show before. I-, I think that David Icke, to quote him, he put it best when he does that comparison to a germ in the body, right? A, a germ is in the body and all the white blood cells start attacking it. That's what happens when you're in society and you go against the grain. You get attacked. People are shallow creatures. And if you're different, you will get attacked. Whether you're a different race or you're a mutant, whatever it is. Do you guys read the X-Men comics? You get what's going on in there with the mutants and Professor X and the people getting persecuted? They're being attacked because they're different. Yes. If you listen to this show, chances are that you are different. (laughs) You are different too. But be proud of who you are because it's good to be different. Why would you think otherwise? It's not easy. It's not the easy path. But I can guarantee you, you're going to have a more interesting life than those people that got to deal with the dirty diapers at a young age. The people that follow the cookie cutter path, you're probably going to have more fun. And don't be afraid to explore that side of yourself, that different side of yourself. Don't be afraid. I like to think that I contribute the the most to the world when I'm being an artist. 
when I'm creating some kind of artwork. I consider this show to be artwork. I consider anything artwork that I'm, or most things artwork that I'm not getting paid for. I mean, we can get really obsessed with our careers and obsessed with making money and obsessed with the so-called real world and getting ahead. But we're not contributing anything to the world. When we create art, that's when we're really contributing. And the system wants to shut that down because it takes money to live in this world. And most people don't get paid for their art. Only a few lucky ones. So there's not that incentive there. The matrix, the material world, society seems to want to keep us from expressing that side of ourselves, that creative side of ourselves, that part of us that is creative. That stuff comes from that God spark inside all of us. And that's why the matrix and the system wants to suppress that, that side of us. You're welcome. I just made you a little smarter. <laughs> Also, don't feel bad if you are out there trying to get things going for yourself. If you're trying to be successful. If you're trying to make money so that you can have less stress in your life and feel good about yourself and have a nicer house and a nicer car. Don't feel bad if you're not there yet. And don't give up. Because... I know a lot of you out there, you're frustrated because it's not happening fast enough for you. You start to get ahead. You you encounter some kind of obstacle or roadblock. Or you have some kind of setback. Realize that a setback is just a setback. Keep your compass pointed in the right direction. Focus on your goals. Focus on what you want. And you will get Keep moving in the right direction, and you'll be fine. You don't have to work that hard, really. Work smart. Don't work hard. But keep focused in a positive direction, and you'll get there. You will have that success. Don't expect it to come all at once, because that's not why you're here. You're here to get bumped around and bruised. You're here to learn things and experience. But you'll get there if you, if that's what you really want. You'll get there. So relax. Because getting all wound up and frustrated isn't going to get you there any faster. When you're relaxed, when you're positive, that's when you make those connections. That's when you're more able to make it happen. Whatever it may be to you. Do what thou wilt. We got to get back into the magic, right? We've done all kinds of shows lately. But we've been neglecting the magical world, haven't we? Or maybe we haven't. <laughs> no, we have. Seriously. We got to get back into that. And I'm probably... Whoops. And I'm probably going to be doing more shows on my own. Or not probably, I am. So there are going to be shows where it's just me... And even though we did do a holiday special that was kind of like a Halloween Thanksgiving show, I do probably want to do a Christmas show too. 
because I love Christmas. And what better time to do a show with just me and no guest and to celebrate Christmas with the people that I love the most, my end of days radio family. You lovely people out there that make me feel so happy about providing you with this show. This show about a boy in a world of craziness. This show about a boy named Daniel. Oh boy. I think that we almost forgot something, didn't we? We almost forgot the mind-blowing moment of the day, but we are not forgetting, are we? That's right. It's time. Hold on. I need to grab my maraca. It's time. It's time. It's time for that mind-blowing moment of the day. Wow, man. That's fucking crazy, man. You're blowing my mind, man. Put it away, man. Stop. You're blowing my mind. Too many drugs. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. No drugs. Ugh. But I'm going to say that the mind-blowing moment of the day would have to be when our guest, Bruce R. Fenton, he mentioned the psychic stuff at the beginning. I thought that was freaking cool. I mean, wow. Haven't I been telling you guys? Haven't I been telling you? Right? I've been telling you that psychic powers are real. Yes, I'm talking about Professor X. I'm talking about Jean Grey. I'm talking about Cable. I'm, I'm talking about psychic powers being real. Ew, he's crazy. Daniel's crazy. There he goes again. He's crazy. He's being crazy. I still listen, but he's crazy. No, I'm not. And stop with that. Psychic powers are real, and they always have been. You're psychic, and you always have been. Duh. Psychic abilities are real. And we've explored that a lot on this show. If you want to dig through the archives, if you listen to the live stream that just the live stream that just cycles the show 24/7, that's at endofdaysradio.com by the way. We talk about psychic abilities quite a bit. We've even had a couple people on here that work with so-called special children that may or may not be alien hybrids. They might be, they might not. Who have these abilities. They're real. It's been proven so many different ways. What about the remote viewing program that the military sponsored? Just one of the occult type of things that governments have been into in the past. And it goes way, way back. I don't care if you don't believe it or not. It's true. We are all connected. We are all one. I don't I don't know how it works. How is it that in the world of physics, you can have two particles on opposite ends of the universe, yet somehow they're linked? Yeah, exactly. I just smart-pwned you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, what else do we have here? I do want to do some traveling. So many of you are always 
you're always like inviting me to visit with you and come to your areas and do this and do that. And I'm always so focused on the stuff that I have right here. Like I'm focused on training or I'm focused on the guitar. This show obviously always comes first or, or, or my career outside of the show, things like that. I'm always focused on them and it's hard for me to pull myself away from that stuff and just relax and go on a vacation, but I'm going to do it. I want to visit some of yous out there. I want to go visit you. I want to go to your hometown. I want to eat dinner and break bread with your family. If you would have me, perhaps we can wash each other's feet. Perhaps we can go explore some underground bases. Perhaps we can solve some unsolved cases. I just rhymed. But I do want to go visit you in your areas. I do want to have fun. I do want to get to know you. We can drink wine. I don't smoke pot. I'll eat it with you if you would like. So long as it's legal in your area. Otherwise, we have to keep it a secret between you and me. I'll come to you. And we can we can play some Double Trouble. We can play some Stratego. We can play some Mousetrap. Perhaps we can play one of these HP Lovecraft board games. We can play Magic Cards. <laughs> but let's do it. Let's hook up. I don't know when I'll be able to come visit you in your particular area, but I got to take a vacation sometime. So I do plan on getting out. And perhaps doing some stuff on YouTube. Who knows? We we have a certain amount of time on this planet. I'm not going to waste it. I do have one more letter to read for you guys before we call things to an end tonight. I promised you that we would do longer shows, and that's what we're going to do. We're hitting the three-hour mark. And that's three hours with just one break in the middle, 10 minute break. Otherwise, that's three hours commercial free, which is probably evidence to six out. I mean, not evidence. It's probably equivalent to six hours on terrestrial radio when you have traffic, when you have news, when you have commercials every so often. So just remember that. And if you have this show in podcast form or you listen to this show in podcast form, then there is no break even. It's only a break for the live people. Shout out to you live listeners out there. Dear Daniel, my girlfriend left me for one of my friends. Now they kiss in front of me all the time, showing off, and now I want to put a big fat bullet in my head. That's from Andre. Andre, 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 what are you doing? Don't Put a bullet in your head. You don't want to do that. Trust me. There's no coming back from that. That does sound a little mean that your girlfriend and one of your friends are kissing in front of you. I guess she would not be your girlfriend anymore. That that would be tough to deal with. I got to admit, I would not want to have to deal with that. But I have to say that if they're doing that in front of you, are they really your friends? I don't think friends mentally torture their friends. 
I don't think that anybody who really likes you in their heart is going to use a connection that you had with somebody to hurt you like that. I don't think that she should be doing that. That's mean. And it sounds like she's playing games and trying to mentally torture you or somehow it makes her feel good to get all this emotion from you. Sounds like some kind of emotional vampirism or something of that nature. I don't know why she would be doing that to you. Maybe the situation is that you all hang out together could that be it? Perhaps you should not hang out with them. Maybe you should find different friends or a different group of friends to hang around because they don't seem like they're very nice people. It, that's just not very nice. But don't put a bullet in your head because of a couple stupid, immature little shitheads. That would be terrible. Just let them be shitheads. Move on with your life and it will make you all the stronger and you will learn how to avoid nasty little game-playing bitches like her. So, Andre, put down that gun. Take those bullets out. Or keep them in there and put a trigger lock on that thing, because... Or just get past this whole shit about hurting yourself. What's wrong with you? Why would you hurt yourself for them? Think about that. You are a god. You are immortal. You are... A god. Why Why would a god want to kill itself? That makes no sense. You're just gonna... You're gonna go into purgatory and you're gonna have a shitty time. You're gonna reincarnate. So don't do that. Don't stifle your progress by entertaining these thoughts of hurting your vessel here in this world. Thank you all for listening tonight. I do love all of you. You are the light in my life, truly. And without you, there would be no End of Days Radio. So thank you. If you enjoy the show, remember to go to endofdaysradio.com where you can stay updated on all things End of Days Radio. Next week, we will be once again joined by V from the Red Pill Hardcore podcast. We're going to get updated with him and find out what he's been up to. I hope he's not still being gang-stalked and harassed, and hacked. So many of my guests seem to have those issues. We did lose our Skype connection earlier. I'm sure that's just a normal error. But this show has indeed come under attack. I have come under attack. But I'll fight back. Because when I'm on the attack, I fight back. I gotta stop the, that stupid rhyming. I apologize. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. But if you love End of Days Radio and you would like to help support the show, you can go to endofdaysradio.com and click that PayPal donate button. Donate $5, $10. I thank you so very much for helping me keep the servers up, keep the lights on, and keep on rocking in the free world. Because it is all about freedom to me. I do believe in America. Perhaps we do indeed have a corrupt government. Perhaps we are indeed materialistic, shallow people here in America, but I still say that at the end of the day, we are about freedom here. So shout out to America, home of the free and home of the brave. And shout out to all of you out there, outside of America, in your homes, in the countries that you reside. 
you are on my side, even still, even though you do not live in America, perhaps where you live is even better. Perhaps you live in a country like Iceland, who has solved some of these issues with the big banks and things of that nature. We all seem to have our own struggles, regardless of where we are at. This is the Trump administration. And it's been very interesting, to say the least. And I could probably go on and on about that. But I won't, because we are out of time. And I, even though I don't want to, I'm probably going to run up to McDonald's and eat some big, fat, greasy burgers and fries with lots of ketchup. Maybe I'll get some chicken nuggets. Eat like shit. It'll be great for you. Don't eat like shit. Don't go to McDonald's. This is just a cheat day. It's an exception. And I'm going to never go back there again after tonight, of course. Good night, everybody. Once again, I love you. You love me. We are one happy fucking family. Yes, just like Barney, that big purple gay dinosaur. Oh, wait, hold on. He wasn't gay, was he? Just because he was purple. We don't know that. He was a man in a suit. Is Barney even on anymore? No, wait, hold on a second. Barney was never considered gay, was he? That that was Big Bird. (laughs) Poor Big Bird. (laughs) And I think the purple Teletubby... The purple Teletubby was always getting called all kinds of names. But you don't see that anymore, do you? Because the world has become so much more PC. And... That may be for the better, indeed. But thank you for joining us here on End of Days Radio, for joining me, Daniel. I do broadcast from here once a week, here in my location in Seattle, Washington. I'm actually broadcasting from the Space Needle, from a hidden room in the Space Needle. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I do not broadcast from the Space Needle. I broadcast from my garage, as many of you know. It does get creepy in here sometimes. Occasionally I have a spider walk across the wall that's the size of a freaking hand. Looks like something straight out of the Aliens movies. The facehuggers. I believe they call them Washington House Spiders. But join us next week talking to V from the Red Pill Hardcore. Until then, I am Daniel and I wish you a good night. This is the end of days, and have a good night. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you.
winter is coming. The king has returned from the broken ruins of Babylon. This is the end of days. 